Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, January 3rd. Wow. 843-661-0937. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. Good morning. Does everyone have their game face on? Because I don't. Well, you have to you have to look at me and tell me. I, I thought about I don't it know. coming over this what, morning. What is, what is the game face? I've never been away from a job 11 days. I mean, I thought about it. You know, I, I've just never done that. I mean, the oddity of, well, not odd. I mean, it happens every, what, seven or eight years. Um, Christmas and New Year's are on a Sunday. Uh, the business is not open on the weekend. So to be fair to the employees who deserve a day off of Christmas and, and New Year's, you get that Monday off. Um we skated a bit on Friday before things. I mean, before Christmas. We'll admit that we took the um, the easy route. Rev talked me into that. Coerced. I mean, he's a corrupting force. You've Got to believe that. Worked out. Everything um, was okay. It did. <laughs> the world and, uh, kept turning. But I mean, eleven days is a long time to be gone, and I want to apologize or say, you know, you're welcome for our being gone. <laughs> eleven days. Yeah, you're welcome. Because um, and, and it's been kind of an interesting eleven days. We're talking about you know, in eleven days, what could happen? Well, a lot has happened in 11 days. We've had a record cold spell. We've had a water system go bad. We've had um, the Gamecocks and Tigers losing bowl games. We've had Christmas. We've had New Year's. We've had, you know, a horrific moment in the day of the NFL last night, which is still kind of in, I don't know, branded or emblazoned upon my my psyche um, to see what happened last night. My boys and I, we're sitting around the fire New Year's Eve. We went to the beach. We're sitting around a fire New Year's Eve. It wasn't real cold, but but if if my kids can build a fire, I mean I'm convinced of this. It's the country boy in them. You know what I mean? Um, oh, I get we're, it. we're all country boys are all borderline pyromaniacs. I mean, if you give us half a reason to set something on fire, whether it's a ditch bank or a field or a yard or a or, or whatever, doesn't matter. An automobile. I mean, we'll set it on fire <laughs> given half an opportunity. But we sat around the fire um, New Year's Eve watching the um, the Georgia game after the Michigan and um, and TCU game went off, and we were uh, watching the Ohio State-Michigan. It's kind of an interesting story. Let me, let me give you this real quick. Okay. So in Pauly's, I, I'm convinced to this, there are more Ohio State fans than there are SEC fans. We talk about the growth along the coast. Freehold would be an example of that. Uh, he, you know, his family migrated to the coast of South Carolina from um, the uh, the land of unpleasant weather. So I hear this commotion across the street, and there's this guy that has a home. He lives there. The majority of people who um, live where I or, or have homes where I stay, they live there. I mean, they're full-time residents. So I hear this commotion, this stirring about across the street, and it dawned on me, we're streaming the game. They apparently were not. So they're seven or eight seconds ahead of us. So um, – when TCU did something good, we knew it before we saw it on our television because they were Ohio State fans pulling against Michigan and, and waiting on Ohio State to play. Kind of an unusual feature there. Mm-hmm. So um so I'm in South Carolina and there are, you know, there are more fans pulling for Ohio State than Georgia in my direct vicinity or immediate vicinity. And uh but anyway, we're watching the Georgia game and Remember the targeting call to the back of the end zone? The Georgia player did not get called for targeting. Uh, knocked, uh, I think, um, Marvin Harrison Jr. out of the game. Um, one of my kids, one of my boys said, I really believe that we're going to watch a guy get killed one day playing professional football. Why do you say that? I mean, I'm trying to provoke it. Why do you say that? Well, I mean, just they're so big and fast now. 
I mean, it's like two automobiles colliding one with another. You've got six, five, 250 pound men who can run four, four forties. The amount of force and inertia they bring when they, you know, run into another equally sized or athletic human being. I mean, it's like two Volkswagens colliding and people die in car wrecks every single day. And I'm telling you, I was on a group text last night with a good friend, big Buffalo Bills fan from up north, families from up north. He moved down here. But um, he said, are you watching the game? Yeah. Um, and, and I immediately said, it looked like the guy died. I mean, it really and truly did. Now, we have found out he's not, um, he's not dead. He is in dire straits. He's in critical condition with some sort of um, cardiac injury. Cardiac arrest. On I mean, the he field. had a heart attack. And, uh, you know, that I saw Twitter. I mean, you got to be careful on Twitter. And everybody knows everything, and myself included. But there were doctors saying there's a certain condition when the, uh, when the, when the heart receives such a, a traumatic moment of impact, it can. If it's in the right circuit, uh, me, cycle of beating, it can become a devastating and, and, and lethal injury. So, you know, we're all praying for, I think it's DeMar Hamlin is his name. We're 24 years old, six-round draft choice from the University of Pittsburgh. Um, so we're all thinking about praying for the kid who um, got injured in a way I've never seen on a football field. And, and, I, and I, you know, we're texting back and forth last night. And I actually text my boys. I said, remember what we talked about New Year's Eve? You, you know, Rev, w- when you play football, and I played a lot of football growing up, when you play football, you accept the fact that there's a chance to get injured. Dying doesn't cross your mind. You know, the threat of losing your life is not on the table. It is with IndyCar racing. It is with Formula One racing. It is to some degree with NASCAR. NASCAR has gone, I think, overboard with safety, but who am I to say? I don't drive a car 200 miles an hour around a track with a bunch of other cars around me. But but Formula One and, and IndyCar have always had the the mystique, if you want to say that, of, um, hey, this could be the last time you get in this car. You know, they hug the wife. They hug the children. They get in that in that flying – it's really it's, it's a ground-ridden rocket is what it is. It's a rocket. What do we say about lift and thrust and propulsion? Mm-hmm. I mean, airplanes are designed to get off the ground. Some of these Formula One and IndyCar – I mean, they're, they're jets – designed to stay on the ground. You know, the downforce, the spoilers and, and uh, wind effects or ground effects and all are designed to keep these cars on the track instead of flying up in the air. But but when you play football, you know it's a rough game. You know it's a game that could potentially, your career could end on the next play, right? I mean, something could happen to a knee, a hip, an arm, a, you know, the head, I mean, that massive head trauma. But you just don't think about dying. I mean, nobody thinks a football player is going to ever die because of a an injury he sustained, you know, on the field. Um, but it looked last night like that had happened. Thank the good Lord in heaven it didn't. And thank the good Lord in heaven that there is a, um, I guess, Rev, any report uh, of the guy still living. I mean, from what I'm reading, they intubated him. Um, they, they had to do something. I mean, I, well, I'd get way, uh, way over my head or way uh, out over my skis if I tried to explain what they're trying to do. But they came to the University of Cincinnati. Um, they're the only hospital in the vicinity you would know better than i you're from that area that has a level one trauma center yeah that's what i heard i mean it's yeah. changed so much since i live but there, i mean but... level one trauma center means hey we got to get this guy some real serious help yeah i mean you know he's in serious serious condition and we've got to get him some serious serious help and and i mean i came in here prepared to talk you know for a few moments about the gamecocks and and fighting irish and the tennessee volunteers and and clemson and we'll get there but but i'm telling you when a human being appears to be in that condition right before your very eyes in a sport that you love it upsets you 
I mean, it really upset me last night. I'm as big a football fan as there is. Um, I love football from high school, from, I mean, really from Pee Wee to, you know, to, to, to the midgets or mites or whatever you want to call it, junior high, high school, college, professional, uh, as bad boy says, you know, us football bozo heads or uh, however he describes <laughs> us. Um, I mean, I, I'm one of those. Without question, I'm one of those. And, uh, and to watch something like that happen in real time, it, it, it's not only alarming, it's upsetting. I mean, it upsets you. And you're like, wow. I mean, I, you know, but I go back to the conversation, my kids and I, my boys and I, my daughter was down in Jacksonville doing her thing, Rev, with you. Oh, I yeah. think you made the trip. I did. Now, Rev's got a rant and, and I'll let him get the rant off his um, chest and I'll, you know, he can blame whoever he wants to blame, but, um, but, but I gathered <laughs> from people who made the trip down South. Mm-hmm. So, so once again, let's get this straight. Uh, you know, I don't know how many of you love the Buffalo Bills or, or the Cincinnati Bengals, um, but if you're a football fan, what we saw last night was terribly upsetting. Once again, I believe that every football player who has ever put those pads on understand there's a chance that the next play could be your last. I think every football player from high school on up has always accepted that the next play could be my last. But nobody thinks about losing your life on the football field. And uh, now, any car drivers do. Formula One car driver, race car drivers in general. I mean, they accept that as part of the, when the wife reaches in the car, hugs the, the driver, you know, that there's this unspokenness, but it's a reality. You know, you may not get out of that car. Dale Earnhardt Sr. I mean, it's happened a lot. I, you know, Formula One, any car in particular, because once again, they're driving rockets designed to not fly, but rather stay stay on the ground. But um, I mean, that, that was a... What what changes about football today? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Um, we went from a five-minute break and, and time for uh, – here's what I think happened. I think the NFL is a business, and they let their business bravado take precedent over the, their, their sincerity, and they basically ordered the teams to warm up for five minutes and resume play. And I think both teams, both organizations said, no, we're not playing a game. Uh, not knowing if one of our brothers is dying on the field. I mean, we just had a guy resuscitated, CPR and AER, all these things, uh, AEF. Uh, we're not we're not playing football right now. We may play eventually if we get into UC uh, Trauma Center and we get a report back in 45 minutes that he's fine. You know, he's awake, he's stable. Okay, we'll play the game, but we're not. I mean, our, our brother, so to speak, was just laying, you know, back down, having CPR, being resuscitated from a, a potentially massive heart attack. We're not playing football again. And I think cooler heads prevailed. And um, and to me, the, the decision to make was, we're not playing the game. We'll decide what to do from here. We may play it tomorrow at 2. may play it Wednesday afternoon at 4. We may play it Thursday morning. We not play. We may not play it. I don't know what they'll do. But but to me, the um, the consideration for the player had to take had to take precedent. But we did have other football games. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a... Um, a Gamecock-Irish matchup that was very interesting and intriguing. We had a Tennessee Volunteer-Clemson Tiger matchup that was interesting and intriguing. Neither went our way, folks. Good old folks of South Carolina. But Rev's not as bothered. And it matters what Rev thinks. Rev's not as bothered. <laughs> Here we go. Well, I mean, he's not anywhere near as upset at the game, well, whether whether he's a Cle- – he's a Gamecock. Oh, yeah. So, so he went down and lost to the Catholics. Mm. Um, no shame sure in that. Thing. I mean, a fairly depleted roster. 
You didn't have a Jaheen Bell. You didn't have a uh, Marshawn Lloyd. You didn't have a, a Josh Van. You didn't have a, a Stowe. I mean, there, there were a lot of um, this talent. I mean, this roster, the Gamecock roster is nowhere near talented enough to make up for some of the opt-outs. But they gave it. Uh, yeah. They gave it a good shot. They, I mean, they, they and really it was still, and truly, still fun, and, 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 and had a chance to win the game at the end. Um, you know, but but in a meaningless bowl game. And since the playoffs, the bowl games are kind of sort of meaningless, and you're unless you're a fan of that specific team. Um, so the Gamecocks lose to Notre Dame, and then Clemson just uh, so, something's up. I mean, I don't know what it is. I'm not a Tiger fan, so I don't kind of get into their business as much as I do on the Gamecock side. But there 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 there's too many spells of mediocrity. Clemson has too many weapons. Clemson has too many recruits. Dudes is how we'd say it. I mean, I just said South Carolina doesn't have enough dudes to beat Notre Dame without every dude being available. Clemson's got a bunch of dudes. I mean, other than Georgia and maybe Alabama, Clemson's got as many dudes as anybody, but they don't look like it at times, Riff. They just don't look like they've got the dudes that, that I think they have. Is it is it offensive play calling? I think to some degree it is. I mean, I would argue the offensive play calling is suspect at best. Um, but but your complaint is not about the product on the field, mm -mm. but but rather getting the travel, getting there, the travel. So 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 I mean, explain your situation, Royal Rev. And and I know from what I saw online, I am not the only one. I traveled actually the day after Christmas on Monday. I went to Orlando to visit my mom for a few days and left about noon and i knew that it would be a heavy traffic day obviously it's a very high highly traveled time and i knew that and i knew that i would have to deal with that so i was prepared and i was relaxed and i was not going to be uptight about you know just getting there as fast as i could get there um but that was the worst i'd ever experienced so the roads the interstate in south carolina is just not big enough to handle the traffic demand around any sort of elevated traffic time around holidays I've seen it that way sim similarly on spring break, you know, when, it, when everybody's got like a spring break and everybody's heading toward Florida. Um, I've seen something very similar, but I left Florence at noon on Monday. It took almost five and a half hours to get to the Georgia state line. And think about how. So, so what's different once you get into Georgia? Georgia goes to eight lanes. So we have four lanes in South Carolina all the way through the two state. Two and two. Right. Two going north, two going, going and, south. And it's pretty easy for me to to speculate what's happening. It's just the traffic demand. So if you're going south on I-95, it's not until you hit the I-26 interchange as to when the traffic just changes. Because there is a line of slow traffic coming off of 26. And remember, it's being fed from, from anywhere north and west. So coming down 77 to 26, coming across 26. Uh the, the traffic feed into I-95 at that interchange is where everything changes. There's just so much merged traffic coming on that it just gums up the whole interstate. And then every interchange you come to where there's a, uh, you know, any sort of services, you know, restaurants and uh, gas stations and stuff, the, the traffic is backed up on the interstate to get off the interstate and the traffic is backed up getting back on the interstate and that slows everyone down that's on the interstate so there was so so much time i mean if it added three hours to the travel to the georgia state line two and a half hours whatever it was um then you know there was a lot of stop and go emphasis on stop and it is extremely frustrating and then you you just wait till you get to 
the Georgia state line because it does open up to eight lanes. Okay, why is that? I mean, what has Georgia done that we've not done? I don't know. Here's what I somebody you tell me. me. Well, I mean, okay, and there's a political problem here, right? Okay, um, I knew you knew. No, I don't. I don't know. I can speculate. You ready? Um, I can speculate that we've appropriated. No, let me. We've prioritized a certain way of doing things in South Carolina. The interstate system is a federal highway system, but, but states still have influence in how they spend some of their um, gas tax dollars and, and infrastructure dollars and, and, and roads and bridges and whatnot. Um, this is kind of interesting to me. Name a city other than Florence located on 995. One of the busiest roads in America, right? I mean, do we know mm-hmm. that. I mean, it's not, not just in the, on the East Coast. I-95 is one of the busiest roads in America. Name a city other than Florence located on I-95. Yeah, you really can't. I mean, there's I mean, have we prioritized? I mean, we've always looked at it as a thoroughfare, right? And here's where I'll go. Some of the senators and House members who have seniority, they, they, they chair the committees, they appropriate the dollars, and I think they've been negligent I-95. I mean, I think there's a new era in, in state leadership. I think there's a new era in state government that will begin to prioritize some of the funding of 95. But but once again, I challenge anybody. I mean, I get Santee. You can't move a big lake, right? I mean, the, you know, the road goes across the lake. I get all that. Santee is a quote-unquote city. But name a, not, not a major metropolitan area, because South Carolina doesn't have a major metropolitan area. I mean, Greenville and Charleston would be the closest we have to metropolitan areas. But we're the most populated state in America without a, ma- a designated major metropolitan area. Virginia has about 10 million people. North Carolina has about 11 million people. South Carolina has about 5.5 million people. Georgia has about 11 or 12 million people. Florida has 22 million people. Why have our neighbors, I understand the land mass and the acreage, and I get you know, South Carolina, I'm tired of people saying South Carolina is a small southern state. South Carolina is the 22nd most populated state in America that will probably be top 20 by the next census. I mean, we're having this mass migration of people from the Midwest, from the Northeast, down South. And, and I don't think we've adequately, adequately prepared for that. I don't think we've prioritized and been visionary in our leadership about where to spend and appropriate roads and bridges, dollars. And I'm talking about state infrastructure money. I'm talking about the federal government. Once again, one of the busiest roads in all of America has one city in South Carolina located on that thoroughfare. And I think we've been negligent in prioritizing the significance and importance of South Carolina, uh, of I-95 in South Carolina. I don't think, I think Virginia has made it a priority. I think North Carolina's made it a priority. I think Georgia's made it a priority. I think Florida obviously has made it a priority. Why have we not? I mean, we talk about the, you know, we're, we're a hot state. We're a growing state. But look at what our neighbors are. I mean, I, once again, we can talk acreage and land mass um, other than the coast of South Carolina and Greenville. Where else is growing in our state? I'm not saying we're a horribly governed state, but I think there are things we need to do far more visionary than what we've done. And I think when, when a million people try to get to Florida, whether they're Gamecocks or Tigers, and they run into the I mean, I, I saw Facebook and Twitter post, I guess a tweet and a Facebook post. I saw from very people that I know that are as measured as they come. And they didn't rant and rave and they didn't challenge people and cuss people out or get angry about it. They just said, this makes no sense. Right. And once again, it's eight or 10 or 12 
twi- tweets or Facebook post that, that didn't say, hey, this is all about the, the government. This is all about the, the lack of leadership in South Carolina. But they were, they were questioning, why is this the case? I mean, as I go to, to, uh, to, to Jacksonville to a bowl game or Miami to a bowl game, why do I have to endure 95 in South Carolina but not in Georgia and Florida? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, the people in Georgia aren't smarter than the people in South Carolina. The people in Florida aren't smarter than the people in South Carolina. They've just made I-95 a priority, and we have not. And damn it, it's time we do. It's time that we, we, we've, got here, here. One of, we've got one of the busiest roads in all of America that basically fillet our state. And we've been negligent in prioritizing it because, once again, there's not enough senior leadership in Columbia that, um, that benefit from the improvements that need to be made on I-95. Let's take our first break in 11 days. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Our first caller of 2023 is Dale in Florence. Hey, Dale. Um, <laughs> Yay. While you're talking about traffic, let's talk about Myrtle Beach traffic in the summertime, in, into, out of, and all through. I want to go back to college football for a minute. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the nil money and the transfer portal and all those things and, 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 and how it hasn't been thought out real well. Don't you, with a tra- the nil money is what it is, but the transfer portal – don't you have to keep that closed until after the bowl games, not let players transfer schools until after the bowl games? Because I think, well, I mean, the I, I, I think, really I, over. yeah, I think the biggest change coming will be to the transfer portal. I mean, they've got to get that. Um, the Supreme Court has clearly said that players have a right to get paid. Now, we can debate how to compensate and do they have to do work to get the money. But, but I believe the transfer portal must be immediately revisited and modified to, to provide a better product to the, to the consuming public. Especially with the amount of money they're charging for these bowl games. Um, and like you guys were talking to, people have to travel to them. And you're going and, and, and then a third of your team's not playing. Your regular season team is not playing. And... and, and People are just going to quit. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to quit going to the bowl games because there's not a good product out there. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. College football is not a good product. I'll give you an example. I, I use my, my family. Every member of my family are devout Gamecock fans. I mean, my, my neighbors, every member of their family are as devout Tiger fans as we are Gamecock fans. When we leave on Saturday – We've got every Gamecock shirt imaginable. we got flags flying. They're going to Death Valley. They've got flags flying. They've got orange. We've got garnet. But, but I'm telling you what's happening in particular to young people. Young people are fans of the school they were brought up cheering for and the NFL. In other words, my, all three of my kids are Gamecock fans and then NFL fans, and then somewhere a long way down the road, they're fans of other college football games. If you ask my three kids who were raised around college football, both my boys played football. My daughter's a student at Carolina. So we'd be the typical, you know, Gamecock family. They all want to go to Columbia. They all want to put, watch the Gamecocks play. They want to beat Clemson as bad as I do. But on Sunday, they're not checking to see whether Mississippi State beat LSU or to see whether Maryland beat 
Purdue or whether North Carolina beat NC State. They could care less about that. They have zero interest in that. They're far more interested in the National Football League. So, so they're first, and I, I, you know, I'd, I'd probably hate to ask this question to my kids. Do you like the Gamecocks better than the National Football League? Because I'm afraid if they were honest, they, they would lie to me, I'm sure, just to be <laughs> kind of loyal to Dad. They'd say, oh, Dad, we love the Gamecocks like you do. You know you brought us up being Gamecock fans. We'd never do that to you, Dad. But, but if there was a truth serum and, and they had to answer you honestly, they'd probably say, Dad, we like the Gamecocks, but we love that NFL. It's just a better product. I mean, it's 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 promoted better. It's um, it's it's better entertainment. Um, it's just I mean, obviously, it's a better football product because the best players in the world get drafted to the NFL. Um, but but the NFL has a commissioner. It has divisional play. It's not you know piecemeal together here, there, and yonder. You don't have the SEC trying to claim their turf or the ACC trying to claim their turf of the Big Ten and Pac-12 and the regions and all these other sorts of things. You got part-time officials. In college football, you got commissioners who are motivated by things other than the quality of product on the field. And I think the National Football League has a, a singular focus on um, how parity of the game, competitiveness of the game, how many teams are, are still remaining viable for the playoff hunt. Think of this, Rev. Who had the number one recruiting class in America this year? Alabama. Who had the number two recruiting class this year? It, it's like letting the, the Green Bay Packers draft first every year. Or, you know, the Packers would be a bad example because they're 8-8 eight eight this year, but you know where I'm headed. Yeah. I mean, it'd be like letting the Buffalo Bills and Cincinnati Bengals draft first every year. I mean, the rich get richer, and there is very little parity. Um, you got a 14 playoff system. I know that changes to 12. But the NFL, excuse me, college football has been a poorly, poorly managed sport. And the reason they've got their butt over a barrel is they were arguing over turkey sandwiches and whether a kid can get a baseball cap or not and, and the name, image, and likeness came along. And that ain't going back, guys. That genie ain't going back in the bottle. I mean, I was in a debate over the, the time we were off about, you know, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. I wish it was the other way. Um, stop with that. I mean, Supreme Court has already spoken. The, the performer has a right to get paid. Now, we can debate how much and how. and But but I think transfer portal, I think some of the, um, so, some of the other intricacies of the changes in college football. The, if I were a college football king, I'm not. It needs a commissioner. I mean, college football needs a um, a person who creates a vision, maybe a commissioner with an advisory committee that points the sport in a certain direction or other. Um, the, the National Football League will have at least six good football games every Sunday. College football has hundreds of bad games. I mean, LSU beats Louisiana Monroe by 60 points. Clemson beats Furman by 50 points. Now, the Gamecocks beat Ball State by 40. Who wants to watch that nonsense? I mean, it's a joke. There's not much of that in the National Football League. It's all about parity. It's all about competition. It's all about intriguing storylines. Nearly every team of the National Football League are still eligible for the wild card, you know, during the midseason point of the uh, the football season. It's just a better product. It's run better. Um, and, and, I, and I say the, the college football mafia, is fighting for its dear, you know, I mean, it, it, the, the tacky blazer club. I mean, it existed a long time to screw up the, I mean, we, we had playoff games and then more bowl games. I mean, how dumb is that? <laughs> the The only two games that really matter in determining a champion are played Saturday night. They're not going to play games on Sunday because of the NFL. They don't want to butt heads with 800-pound gorilla and, and the ratings bonanza. So they wait until Monday. And play more college football games. You see where I'm headed? I mean, it's just a broken yeah. system. 
and it's been piecemealed together. And I think it needs a commissioner to kind of rectify some of the, I, I don't want to say imperfections, some of the nonsensical ways that they um, they play the game. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, y'all. How y'all doing? Hey, sir. How are you? All right. I just like to say the NFL, their overtime really sucks. It's a lucrative flip of the coin, basically. College has got the best overtime playoff. You know, just stay to getting us. Keep a good game going. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I don't disagree with that. I think college football has a better overtime than the NFL, but that's about it. <laughs> I mean, the NFL is I – mean, and I love football, guys, and I'm, I'm partial to college because I grew up going to games in Columbia. But but I'm telling you, the quality of product in college, I mean, it's not even close to how good the NFL is. Let's go to the phone. Jay in Hartsville. Good morning, Jay. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah, the – with the NI, the problem with the transfer portal is the NIL. Obviously, NIL is not going anywhere, but you can't have the players wait until after the bowl games to declare for the transfer portal because you have that early signing period. Mm-hmm. And coaches, coaches have to know what players they've got to go after based partially based on who's declaring for the transfer portal. And the NIL, what it's doing is whether people want to admit it or not, there is tampering going on, and colleges are getting in contact with players who are on teams and saying, look, if you get into the transfer portal, we've got this NIL deal waiting on you. And whether you like it or not, NIL, like you say, is here to stay. So South Carolina's got several NIL companies I say companies, but entities, Garnet Trust, Carolina Rise. So you can't complain about it and then not contribute to it so that South Carolina is competitive with NIL and can attract the top-tier recruits so that we can have the depth chart necessary to compete with the Notre Dames and the Ohio States and the Alabamas at some point in the future. Jay, w- w- let me ask you a question. What about an NIL deal that forces you to play in the bowl game? That could be possible. Um, I think a lot of the a lot of the college coaches want the federal, uh, you know, Congress to implement rules because the the NCAA just threw this thing to the wind and set no parameters for it at all. And so now we've got to hope that Congress steps in and that what you say is a possibility or have the deal structured to where if you leave the school, then either you've got to pay some of the money back or the deal that you've signed is null and void. Um, That could be something, Um, you know, so I I like your idea, but uh, yeah, there are some things that could be done. I know this for a fact, and, and you know, I mean, we're probably reading some of the same stuff, and I, I got a couple of folks up there that I speak with. I mean, University of South Carolina is scrambling right now. I mean, they're, they're behind in NIL. Clemson's behind in NIL, and when someone comes and tries to poach one of your players and, and says, you know, like Jaheim Bell in Florida State, I'll give you an example. Florida State goes to Jaheim Bell and say, hey, we're here. You're not 100% happy at South Carolina. I'm not. Declare for the portal. We got two deals waiting on you in Tallahassee as we speak. I mean, that, that's kind of the way the game is played right now. And if you don't have, you know, a fund set up, if you don't have money in the bank, so to speak, to answer what Florida State is trying to do for Jaheim Bell, 
I mean, he walks, and, and I get it. I mean, you know, if if he may he may love the Gamecocks, he may love the coaching staff, but but if somebody offers him ten grand a month to play college football, he's more than likely going to walk and become and become a Seminole. That's happening a lot in Columbia. I can't speak to Clemson because I'm not as close to that program as I am to the Gamecocks, but I know for a fact that three players in particular at South Carolina are right now waiting on the Gamecock NILs to to answer some of the solicitations made by competing teams. Oh, oh, for sure. And, you know, when when Park Avenue got uh, suspended by the NCAA, and I suspect that some of the Blue Bloods didn't like the fact that we had Park Avenue and they didn't, right? So that was, what, 2 to $5 million right there? $2.2 million. Yeah. Uh, it's now unavailable until all of that gets squared away. So, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to put it, now we as fans have to step up. Like, I, I, I joined Carolina Rise. It's $18.01 a month to help with the NIL deals for the student-athletes. To me, that's a small price to pay as a fan to, you know, hopefully help produce a better product on the field. Uh, so that we can go to these playoff games and root for the Gamecocks. So, it, and yeah, it, it's, a, it's a bad situation that's only going to get worse if we don't get some parameters in place. Very well explained. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate you calling. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. You know, we're talking about getting to the football game. When you go on 95, one of the busiest roads in America, and, and I'm arguing it's been neglected. It's not been uh, prioritized. It's not been. There's not been a visionary approach to infrastructure wrong. in South Carolina. We could argue. I mean, you asked me during the break, what do I think the problem is? The, the governor of South Carolina is weak. I mean, the, the overwhelming majority of political yank in South Carolina resides in the two chambers. I mean, the House and Senate. Senate in particular, I can speak to because I presided over the Senate. And I had a kind of a, you know, an up close and personal look at how they conduct business. I'm not saying senators and are bad. And you're talking about the governor's office and the way the power is structured in the state. It's a weak governor. Weak. We, we, we have a very weak governor. The, the only person weaker than the lieutenant than the governor in South Carolina is the lieutenant governor. The, the political horsepower resides in the Senate. So when you look at, um, I, went, I went online just a second ago. I-95 runs through Jasper, Hampton, Colleton, Dorchester, Orangeburg, Clarendon, Sumter, Florence, Darlington, Marlboro, Dillon. If one of the busiest roads in America run through those counties, why are those counties so distressed? Why is it the corridor of shame? What has South Carolina done as it relates to economic investment in some of those counties? I mean, those are some of the most challenged counties in our state. Once again, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. Name a city not named Florence or, or list a city not named Florence on I-95. How can the busiest road or one of the busiest roads in America basically gut or fillet your state and have so little economic activity. I get wetlands. I get all these other arguments in rural America and, and, the, and the gripe and beef there. But, but I would argue that the majority of reason is the governor's not been able to prioritize or, or be visionary in a statewide infrastructure program. The majority of political horsepower, once again, in the House and Senate are held by committee chairs who are committee chairs, the most senior members. And if the most senior member does not have a direct interest in 95, I mean, I know this to be true, Reb. I know that one of the highest ranking senators in South Carolina, and I know him to be a good man, he has no interest at all 
in what happens in Oreo, Georgetown County or Charleston County. None. I mean, he'll say, let those people figure out how to get to the coast on their own. I'm not spending money. I'm from the upstate. I'm more interested in the upstate. I answer to the voters of the upstate. That's where I'm going to recommend investments be made. The governor could circumvent some of that. The the, the governor could, I mean, if we had a chief executive officer of our state, the governor could say, look, Senate, I mean, I understand you have a constituency in Greenville. You have a constituency in York. You have a constituency in Lexington. But we're going to build roads where the growth is whether you like it or not, and you can get on board or not. I think that's the kind of relationship the governor should have with the General Assembly, but the General Assembly knows they have all the political horsepower, and the governor's kind of along for the ride. I mean, why did Nikki and Mark not get anything? Does somebody say, well, they were obstinate, difficult. They didn't want to play ball. Well, I mean, they knew that they were going to end up doing what the, the General Assembly said do. And I'm not knocking the General Assembly. I mean, if I were in the Senate, you know, the last thing I'd want to do is give up the power. But, but if we had a kind of a statewide chief executive officer who was allowed to have a vision for South Carolina, I-95 wouldn't be in the condition it's in. That's the argument I'm making. You said that, um, that it was embarrassing. I mean, that, those were your words. Mm-hmm. It's embarrassing to look at 95 in South Carolina as opposed to Georgia and Florida. Well, the reason it's embarrassing is how we've allocated funds. And the governor has very little say in the statewide vision of where the improvements and enhancements should be made. And once again, if I'm a senator from Greenville and I don't have to worry about how people get in and out of the beach or or Mount Pleasant or Charleston, then why do I worry about it? But if I'm a governor and my obligations are to the constituency that is everybody in the state, I, I just think that's a better way to execute an infrastructure plan and funding and appropriating dollars to, to basically enhance or, or improve our state's infrastructure. And uh, I'll say this, not only about the, the interstate, the fact that it's it's four lanes and there's just too much traffic for the four lanes. When I was coming home from the bowl game late on Friday night, I hit a pothole that I thought knocked the wheels off the car. But you're a chronic complainer, and people know that about you. And I try not to. <laughs> let's, let's, but, but listen, that for anybody who's driven on I-95 over the last week or two, I mean, you know but, what but, I'm saying. But am I making sense? Well, sure. I mean, if you are a senator from Greenville, why would you care about 95? I mean, in all honesty, I mean, I get the altruistic nature of government. Okay, bank on that and show me where that gets you. No, the point I'm trying to make is if the governor had a larger say in how we appropriate taxpayer dollars in the name of infrastructure, I-95 would be equal to North Carolina, equal to Georgia, equal to um to Florida, but we don't. And once again, if, if I were that senator from Greenville, I wouldn't much care about what happened in Horry County because I'm not made to. But if I am the governor of the state, I have to look at where the high growth areas are and appropriate dollars accordingly. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Hey, guys. One thing I figured out over the past week, I'm more and more certain that everything is being done is done on purpose. And I was looking at that quote from Bob that book 1984 said we'll be easy to be controlled because we'll be drunk and watch the sports the universities have nothing thereby thereby enemy every university in this country is our enemy the nfl nba major league baseball they're also our enemy they don't give a rat's behind about any of us and i can't even you can't even sit down with your kids and watch a netflix show 
without them forcing all some kind of gay agenda down your throat. And God forbid if there's such a thing as a white man with a white woman and two normal white kids. I mean, that that, that is evil incarnate, evidently, because you can't catch that nowhere. I mean, anybody that's, I mean, you're talking about that old uh, a, a race of people being singled out as purely evil. If you are a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male that believes in God and you're married to a white woman with three kids, man, you, you, they, you can forget it. You couldn't you could sell that old uh, you, know, you can't. You couldn't sell nothing. There's no. There's no ad agency on earth hiring you right now. And I'll tell you another thing too. I'm sitting there watching what's going on. We are borrowing. We're printing money because we spent all the money that we did have. We're raising interest rates at the same time, and then we're turning around and getting. I mean, does anybody? I mean, here I am with a central education. And I got enough sense to know that if you're printing money you don't have, it's just you're making the money worthless. You put more and more money out there, and government is the one that does that. And then you look around and wonder why you have inflation. You put taxes on daggone crude oil. You know, in 2023, they've added taxes to all fossil fuels, and also they're going to add a tax on the stock. And then you tell me they are intentionally trying to destroy this world. And at the same time now, they want the daggone mask everybody up. And if you don't think this has been biological warfare, you're another idiot. And they've made us all weaker with these daggone jabs. I said, nobody's got an immune system anymore. And everybody's sitting there daggone getting drunk every night and watching football. They say, hey, everything's all right, man. I'm drunk and I'm watching football. Man, we are clueless. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that, my man. 843-661. 0937 is our number. You know, we're talking about 2022, the year that was, 2023, the year that will be. Um, I mean, I read a lot over the weekend, uh, not as much during the week. I mean, I kind of checked out, but over the weekend um, when I wasn't watching football and I was watching football and enjoyed every second of watching football. But um, but I started reading these articles because I'm trying to, I mean, once again, guys, the, the, the micro and the macro. I mean, what are the macro? I mean, I've said for a year, probably more than a year, that that debt and energy. I mean, debt and energy are the macro issues that we better get right. For the first time in a long time, I'm hearing some official voices um, expressing concern about electric vehicles. I don't know if you saw this or not, no. but um, the chairman of Toyota Motor Company. I want to find this article. Because uh, I don't want to misspeak here. I thought I'd printed it off, but I hadn't. But um, T-O-Y-O-D-A, Mr. Toyota, who is the uh, the chairman of Toyota, T-O-Y-O-T-A, Motor Company, is basically arguing that um, that we're making some pretty serious mistakes when it comes to um, the the aggressive investments in, in, um, in, I mean, in other words, states. I mean, guys, in 2030, California, no, in 2030, Germany, is it Germany or Finland? Might be Finland. Don't quote me on this. But, but there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a nation other than America that says by the year 2030, the sale of, um, of, a, of a car with an internal combustion engine is going to be made illegal. I mean, that's seven years. Um, I, I think- thought about this a little bit when uh, I started reading stories about electric uh, rolling blackouts on Christmas because of the cold temperatures and the demands on the electric grid, right? But, but we've made these investments in things that 
you know, we could argue about little theaters and we can argue about performing arts centers and we can argue about libraries and, and, and you know, community centers and homeless shelters. I mean, all of those are fair debate. I mean, I have an opinion. It's more conservative and less government inclined than yours, but, but I, I get it. I mean, I understand that there's a fair debate about, you know, this library or that library or how much money we should have spent on the convention center. I mean, it, it we'll always should the hotel have been attached to the convention center. You know, they made that mistake 20, 25 years ago. But when the cold spell hit, we saw how vulnerable we can be. I mean, we had rolling blackouts in South Carolina, not because we had zero degrees, but we had, what, 17 or 18 degrees. Um we had a, a situation with our water system, um, and this yes, will did. really lead me. Well, I mean, here's what we've done, guys. We've been negligent. It, I wrote down this morning, I think Breeze is right. I think people have generally decided not to trust much of anybody they historically have had trust in, That whether it's the CDC and the vaccine, and I think we'll find out things this week about how dishonest Fauci was. You know, Rev, there's one thing in being wrong. I mean, when, when people make tough decisions, very often they make a wrong decision. You have, I have, everybody does. If I've got 10 difficult decisions to make, I do good to get six right and four wrong. I mean, that's just, I mean, I'm not perfect. I don't, I don't profess to have perfection. Um, you know, I, mean, I, I just don't. I, I get things wrong. I make mistakes. I make a lot of mistakes in my life. But, but the CDC, I think what we're going to find out, intentionally misled, didn't make a mistake didn't just try to get it right, and here we are realizing how wrong we got it. Um, let's use the water system in Florence for an, for a, for a, an example or for a, a, a brief period of time here. So we had um, some colder than normal weather over the holidays for a longer period than normal over the holidays. And we had all sorts of problems. We had leakage. We had uh, pressure loss. We had certain areas that didn't have water. Um, now, now, once again, stick with me because I'm going to end up at the macro. So, so why did we have those problems? I mean, are, are taxpayers not paying enough money? Is the water bill not expensive enough? I mean, that's the argument I heard made. I mean, I read several elected officials on Facebook and Twitter mm. saying we need $400 million more or $250 million more, $100 million more. Well, guys, when some elected official proposes to you that a tax increase is necessary, that they're basically saying the bureaucracy is not to blame. We didn't have enough money. Had we had enough money, we would have maintained this water system. Had we had enough money, now, now once again, some of the uh, energy issues are, are different because, once again, that's the private sector. I mean, the government doesn't run the electric grid. I mean, I understand that there's a, a, a coexistence that is forced between the private sector and, and, and government when it comes to providing electricity and, and, you know, who subsidizes this and where do you build a, a substation, how many megawatts or kilowatts or gigawatts. Or, I mean, they, yeah, I mean, the government has a hand in, in regulating a power in, or the power industry. But let's go to the water for a second. So if you're an elected official and you say that the answer is $200 million, that the reason we're in this situation is we've not maintained the water system as effectively as we should have, and if we had more money, we could. I mean, that, that's, that's an argument. So, so what, I mean, if you're asking the taxpayer for $200 million or an increase in the water bill, you're basically saying, in, in all these years, we've not had enough money. Well, it's hard for me to be convinced 
that we didn't have enough money when we've done all these other things that aren't vital. They aren't part of the critical infrastructure. Once again, I'll debate homeless shelters. I'll debate convention centers. I'll debate hotels attached to convention centers. I mean, I think there's a very worthy debate to be had about amenities and quality of life and what government's role and responsibility is in that. You got conservative folks who say, oh, it's very limited. You got more liberal people. You got moderate. Somebody. In, in other words, that is a, a, a genuinely fair debate to be had. But, but nobody can argue that the water system is the government's responsibility. They own it, that they need to maintain it, that they need to monitor, police, oversee whatever is necessary in making sure we don't have um, instances or occurrences like we did when the cold weather hit. But it seems to me, and, and I guess I'm being critical of elected officials, it seems to be that the knee-jerk response was, you know, the it was not negligence, it was not a redirecting of funds, but, but rather we don't have enough money. I mean, if we had more of your money via a tax increase or an increase of the water bill, we could have done a better job of maintaining the infrastructure. My time on council goes back to 2004. In 2004, it was reported to me as someone who asked because I inquired um, about some of the potential problems with our water system, and negligence was an issue then. You've got to maintain the critical infrastructure. You know when you build a library? You know when you build a museum? You know when you build um, a convention center with a hotel attached? After you're damn sure your water system is sound. After you're damn sure that the electric grid or your role in, in, in you know interacting with the people who provide power is, is as it should be. I mean, that's when you go to the extra amenities. See, nobody likes to get in the muck and the mud and fix water pipes and water lines because nobody gets a gold shovel. And there's not a big announcement. And there's not a celebration about another industry coming to town. Or look at what we've done to the quality of life department. No. And and we've been unbelievably negligent in repairing or maintaining our water system for many, many, many years. And here's where I go to the macro. I, I'm the one that puts this on the table when nobody else will. I think there needs to be a serious consideration of consolidating local government in Florence County. I mean, I'm convinced of that. I've studied it. I've tried to understand it. Uh, I've done this for about 10 or 12 years. And I believe that the the water is the central issue. The city owns the water department. The city is the only provider of water in the entire county. I mean, if, if, if you live in the county and you want to tap, you're going to pay about twice as much. You're going to pay about, uh, well, not quite twice as much. You're going to pay more for your water bill. In other words, the water costs a county resident more than it does a city resident. The tap fee costs a county resident more than it does a city resident. Why is that the case? Well, the city has the water. The city's loyalty is what? To city residents. What, what is the most enticement or the most enticing feature of having water when it comes to annexation? I mean, if you're a developer and you want to build 50 or 60 or 80 homes, why, I mean, why wouldn't you annex into the city? You see where I'm headed? And I just believe that right now in Florence County, and, and city members, I mean, city council members will, will never go for this. And I understand it. I mean, if I were a member of city council, I wouldn't go for it either. But I think there's a strong case to be made because of the uniqueness of the water system in Florence for consolidated local government. Um, I actually spoke to, I mean, our delegation. I'll try to get them to talk a little bit about it um, this Friday. You know, Annex A, we live in a city that's basically 50-50 um, African-American or, or minority and white. I mean, it, it's pretty close to 50-50. I think it's 47 African-American, 46 white, and about six other Hispanic, Asians, you know, others. 
that that would fall into that into into that demo. But you've only got one Republican in city government. Let me say that again. You, you've got about forty seven percent of your city African American, forty six percent white, but you've only got one Republican in all of city government. I'm a limited government advocate. I believe in less government. I believe in Republicans. I would rather have Republicans holding office than Democrats. That mean I don't like Democrats because I can hear people, eh, it's all about race. No, that's nothing with race. I just believe that, that Republicans adhere to the principles of limited government more than Democrats do. So, so if I'm playing my hand the best way I know how, and I don't believe we can annex enough people into the city of Florence, to, to, to increase the likelihood that we have Republican leadership that advocates for limited government, why wouldn't I advocate for the consolidation of city and county government? What do we save as Florence County taxpayers if we consolidate government? I mean, if you had a countywide police department, a countywide water system, um, nine elected officials representing each and every uh, you know, the cities hates that. I mean, and I get it. They should. I mean, they, they should They should want to come on the radio show and argue with me about why that's a bad idea. And they're certainly invited at any time. I mean, any city council member that wants to come on this radio show today, tomorrow, or the next day and argue with me why I have a bad idea, I mean, the invitation stands. I'd love to have city council members come on the show and explain why my idea is a bad idea. But Florence has a very unique situation with its water. And I think the uniqueness of that water situation forces me to believe that consolidation of local government is a better answer than annexation into the city. That's just where, I mean, that, that's where I've concluded. And I've thought this out. And I think you have listened to me for a long time. I mean, I do pop off and I say crazy things to provoke a response. But, but in this particular situation... I've thought a lot about it. And I, I don't want to, you know, I can't do this. I mean, there's nothing I can do to make it happen. I mean, we can engage in a debate. We can have a conversation. The General Assembly would have to be involved. I mean, the courts have already ruled that's the way it has to happen. But I would challenge any city council member who says I have a bad idea, come on the air and we'll debate it. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 I want to get back to that in just a second, but let's be respectful of Ryan Schmelz this time. He's with um, Fox News Radio in our nation's capital. Um, that is where the president won't be today. He'll be in Kentucky with an event with Senator Mitch McConnell. We don't see a lot of bipartisanship no. unless there's some national disaster, excuse me, natural disaster, national emergency, and they kind of rally the troops, circle the wagon, so to speak. This is a bit unusual. And, and Ryan, we think, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, this is to um, uh, recognize the $1.7 trillion infrastructure package or the, 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 the omnibus bill. Right. Uh, infrastructure is the one that they're most likely going to be focusing on. Now, to be clear, this trip's going to be happening on Wednesday. when uh, uh, That's when the departure's going to be going down. Mr. McConnell's got to deal with some, uh, some congressional uh, ceremonies today, as we should say, with uh, Congress getting kicked off today. But, yes, so mostly this is uh, supposed to be a message of bipartisanship. Keep in mind that uh, uh, Leader McConnell and, and President Biden have had a working relationship for, for decades now uh, in both Congress and when uh, uh, – Biden has been an executive either as vice president or president. But, you know, the, there's a bridge that's going to be under uh, that the Department of Transportation just awarded one point six three five billion dollars for construction. And it's a companion bridge to the Brent Spence Bridge uh, there in, uh, in the Cincinnati uh, slash Kentucky area. And it's been uh, McConnell kind of declares this to be a crowning accomplishment for the infrastructure bill. 
That's very interesting in a, in a um in a Republican party where Mitch McConnell is largely um, unpopular, he meets with the presidents. I don't want to say it's in your face, but that there's an optic there that, that won't make many Republican um, voters happy. Ryan, thank you for your time. Appreciate that very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. There's Ryan Schmelz, Fox News Radio. I'm going to go back to this real quick. Rev, we're talking during the break a second ago. Um, I mean, it just gets a little bit confusing now, but the county had a water department. They sold the water to the city. This predates my time on council. I mean, I got there after the deal had been made. The city basically buys the system from the county, and then the county gets reimbursed in um, annual payments. The payments are, you know, equally divided amongst the nine council districts, and then it's up to you to decide where you want to make the investment in infrastructure. So basically, you're giving the city back the money to invest in rural water wherever they choose appropriate. Um, I could only find one place in my council district that that economically made any sense. I mean, it would have been economically feasible. There, there was a, a somewhat developed area um, in, in, in the evergreen area, kind of halfway between Florence and Pamplico that I represented. And it, I mean, it was feasible to run water there, but you got sparsely populated rural America, you know, and it takes a lot of money to run a water line. Um, but, but, the William Schofield basically ran for city council complaining about the, the, the lack of maintenance on critical infrastructure. And, and once again, that there are people making an argument that we need 200 million more dollars, 300 million more dollars, 400 million more dollars. We didn't increase the water bill 15, 18, 20%. Well, the argument is we don't have enough money. And, and I'm just not buying that. I, I just don't buy that for a second. I think there's enough money there if you prioritize to do the critical maintenance to the infrastructure. Now, the unfair part of this is you've got an office holder now who's beholden to the negligence of the six or seven previous office holders. You know what I mean? You've got four-year terms. Uh, if you wait 20 years, a million-dollar problem becomes a $20 million problem. A $20 million problem becomes a 40 or $50 million problem. And at some point in time, I guess, we the people have to bite the bullet and pay for the necessary repairs. And it should be said, though, in light as we look back and see the problem, try to identify the problem and fix the problem, uh, we need to recognize the workers that went out on Christmas and addressed these issues and worked for, you know, days to, to get the water system at least back to the pressure and everything that, that everyone well, that's, needs. That's kind of their job. I know. But, that's kind of but, their but job. They, they, they deserve credit. Mm-hmm. They had to deal deal with it on Christmas, and uh, and I just want that's, to say that's, thanks. That's kind of their job. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like thanking people for doing their job. Well, do let's go to the phone. Here is Larry in the PD. Hi, Larry. <laughs> Morning, guys. Happy hey, New Year. Hey, Larry. Happy New Year. Um, so... Don't get offended because I'm saying this as a joke, but I'm going to compare you to a Democrat this morning. Ooh. You're right about what's wrong, but you're wrong about how to fix it. That, that's the typical Democrat. If you take your logic and continue to, to go further and further with your line of thinking, you're making an argument that the federal government should take over everything. Not at all. Well, I mean, if, if, if small local government is too ineffective and too inefficient— and we need to move it up a level to the county government. Why can't? What would stop the state from saying, you know what? These counties are just too divided and too fractured, and they're they're using their money poorly. If we consolidated all that money in Columbia, we could do a better job. But but I, I think that. But I, yeah, I understand if you. Thing. But if you play it out to the extreme, I, I'm not playing it out to the extreme. I think that the, the because of the uniqueness of the water system in Florence, and, and I'm familiar because I served on county council because of the uniqueness of the water system in Florence. It is a it is a very viable process to try and work through 
as to whether we need to consolidate city and county government. I don't say it works everywhere, but but everywhere doesn't have the uniqueness of our water system. And because of that, I think it makes us a likely suspect for consolidation of local government to be a cost saver to the taxpayer. So, so how about this? Why wouldn't, and, and on at the beginning, this may sound a little less efficient, but what about um, maybe a self-governing water and sewer authority that's under the administration of both the city and the county? That, that could very easily be on the table. I think that's something to consider. That might be something to look at. But the one thing I want to say, and you're right about it, is that the city can't fix our water system or they, they failed to fix our water system. But I guarantee you in their budget, they've got vans to take people who don't have cars back and forth to Walmart mm-hmm. because God forbid. So I, I think about a guy who buys an apartment complex, right? And in that apartment complex, there's a dishwasher, there's a garbage disposal, there's a water heater, right? He, he charges a certain amount of rent. And every night he hires somebody to bake a cookie to put at your door so that when you get home from work, you have a fresh-baked chocolate chip cookie. Well, that's really nice, right? But then five years from now, when your dishwasher breaks and he says, I'm sorry, I don't have the money to replace that dishwasher, I've spent it all on buying you cookies. Didn't you like your cookie? Well, I really did. But, man, if I'd have known that those cookies were going to cost me my dishwasher, I wouldn't have asked for them. And that's what happens sometimes with these local governments is they start providing too many amenities, and they don't let the people know, oh, this is going to come at the expense of something else later. We think, oh, well, the government's got a surplus. Not only are they taking care of all these important things, man, they've got all this extra money and efficiency to to bake us cookies and drive us to the store and make sure somebody comes by and brings us lunch at our doorstep. We're going to have to make a decision to ease off some of the social amenities that we provide for a very, very small group of people, but we spend a very, very large amount of money on it. See, and Larry, what and, you and, I, and the reason I find you so relatable, and I mean this in the most complimentary fashion, I think I understand your philosophical bent, but, but you have to accept a level of pragmatism. We're going to have to fix the water. It doesn't matter if it's our fault or not. I mean, somebody, you and I are going to have to participate and, and, and helping fund whatever it takes to fix the water. So, so we've got this philosophical bent about us, but we've also got this pragmatism that, that forces us to say, okay, we can't, we can't let the water lines leak every time it gets cold. We can't let the water pressure go to zero every time we have a cold snap. But, but how do you square that up with the $200 million that we may need? You know, because you, you can't print I mean, we're not the federal government. You can't print money out of thin air. I mean, the money comes from somewhere, and I think that's the point you're making, and I think it's a very valid point. So my thing is, is what is the give for the take? All right, government, you want to take more. We know what got us here, and you can pretend that it that it doesn't exist, but we know what got us here. So what is the give, government? What are you going to give for this take? What are we going to give up? So that you show us how this is never going to happen again, because we're not going to come back and revisit this five years from now and need another 200 million and another 200 million and another 200 million. Show me the plan that says not only are we going to fix it, but here is how we are going to be able to maintain it in the future, because one without the other is meaningless. Well explained. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. And Larry's right. If you play my argument out to an extreme, you end up with one government. That is a federal government. And you know the um, the U.S. senator is like king of the the state of South Carolina. I mean, but I'm not. I don't want to play it out to the extreme. The point I'm trying to make 
because of the uniqueness of the water situation in Florence County, and by that I mean the county selling the system to the city, um, I think it's unfair to county residents what they have to pay for tap fees, what they have to pay in a water rate. And I get the city. Look, when I complain about something and I say something's not right, it doesn't mean I don't understand it. I understand all of this. And I've even said if I were on city council, I'd probably look at it this way as well. I'm not on city council. I'm a radio show host. We have four hours to talk about things and to provoke or, or try to inspire conversations about these um, these issues. So, so when I say, you know, that, that I'm, I think we should pursue or explore would be a better word. We need to explore whether or not consolidation of local government makes sense or not. I'm speaking to somebody who's not on city council. I'm not the mayor. I mean, if I were the mayor, you know what I'd be? I'd be totally opposed to that. If I were on city council, I'd be totally opposed to that. If I were managing the city's water department, I'd be totally opposed to that. But it's not my job to represent a constituency in an elected fashion. It's my job to try and provoke conversations about things that I think are worthy uh, of having conversations about. And, and the problem with the water is not the taxpayer's fault. I'm sorry. It, it's just simply not. the now, now, we the people will end up having to pay for it. But I think let, let, let's think through as we, like Larry just said, for the for the take, what is the give? So if we're going to bond $200 million to fix a uh, a, a, a dilapidated water system and, uh, you know, a critical infrastructure that has been neglected, I mean, if we're going to bond $200 million to, and, and charge the taxpayer an increase in water bill or an increase in taxes, whatever, however the, the, the city decides to raise the revenue necessary to make the, the repairs to the water system, what are we getting for that? And I think if we're going to go down that road, let's let's inquire about whether or not consolidating local government makes sense. I think it does. I mean, I told Rev during the last break, if I were on county council, and it's easy for me to say if I were this <laughs> and if I, if I were that, um, if I were on county council, I would consider beginning a conversation about the next penny tax and could we fund a countywide water system? And not be dependent upon, you know, the, the city as being the only show in town. But the city has a monopoly on water. Water's a revenue generator. I mean, that, that's, you know, water generates a lot of revenue for the city of Florence. But there's two sets of circumstances. That there's a water bill you get if you're a city resident. There's a tap fee you get if you're a city resident. There's a water bill you get and a tap, bill, a tap fee bill you get if you're not. And it's an enticement to annex. Well, when the city annexes, guess what the county does? It loses a certain percentage of revenue to pay its bills, to provide its services. And once again, I'm not debating what services need to be cut. I'm just saying if there's $200 million that we need to fix the water system, we're going to have to fix it, but the people paying for it aren't responsible for why it was neglected. And if the people are being asked to pay for it, despite not being responsible for the neglect, then what did they get in return? And I think the, the, the consolidation of local government is something that would be good for the taxpayer. So you're going to ding the taxpayer for $200 million to fix a city's water department that has been neglected. And I could argue easily it's been neglected because they've not prioritized funding the way it should have been. What, what, what are we, the people, getting for that? And I think the ask should be a consideration of whether or not to consolidate city and county government. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Our number someone on the phone. Let's go there. It's Jamie. Good morning. 
Good morning. Uh, Happy New Year, fellas. Same uh, to you, Jim. Listen, um, that break was a little too long. Kind of messed up my scheduling uh, in the morning. And uh, we don't have a transfer portal. We can't go to another uh, program that's as good as y'all's. So um, maybe next year y'all could have some stand-in uh, uh, guest speakers. No, I don't want yeah. that because they might be better than me, and I won't have a job when I get back. <laughs> well, I just suggest that you have Breeze, Jeff, Larry, and Williams. Okay. All three. All, all of those guys are smarter than I am, see, Jam. Oh, that's enough of Jam. Put put Jam. Uh, Jam, have a good day. We'll, we'll talk to you later. Jam, Jam's uh, threatening my, my status of employment. I think Jam uh, wants the job. He well, I mean, he, he, can, yeah, he can have it one of those five days. Yeah. But um, it was a long time to be gone. I want to get back. Rev was talking about his water bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, you know, I mean, this is a minutiae of government. I mean, it really is. Right. This is where the rubber hits the road. I've always wondered why I live in the county and not in the city. And my, I just made, I just paid my water bill for the one that's due on the fifteenth. It was one hundred and sixteen dollars, and it would have been sixty five or seventy or seventy five if you lived in the in the city. I mean, is electricity more expensive in the country? I mean, when you call Spectrum, do they say, "Are you a city resident or county resident?" When you call Duke Energy or PD Electric, Marlboro PD Electric, do they say, "Are you a county resident or city?" I mean, it costs more money to run power lines in rural areas, but but you still pay the same per kilowatt. I mean, as far as I'm, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Somebody tell me if, I mean, does it cost more to get services in the county? I mean, the, 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 the city has a monopoly. And, and when you have that monopoly, you have an obligation to maintain it. And I'll tell you what's happened. You ready? You want to talk real country on your rev? They've been living out that rev, revenue stream. You've got to dedicate a certain percentage of the revenue stream that water generates to service and maintenance. I mean, you're operating and maintaining it is, is paramount. You cannot... You cannot take the money that water generates and build parks and convention centers, and you can't bond money. That's how money. naive I am. I didn't know that water service was a revenue generator. Water is a big like a, revenue generator. Well, it might be a net zero thing. Well, I mean, see, see, what I'm talking about is a countywide water system. I mean, Grand Strand Water and Sewer began as that, and Grand Strand Water and Sewer now provides water to Marion County, Dillon County. I mean, it's a regional water authority. Um, Larry talked about a water authority. That may be something to put on the table and and seriously consider. But the the county has now the ability every seven years to raise an enormous amount of money in the capital penny tax. Now, now once again, they can't do it. They've got to sell it to you or we the people and voters have to approve it via a referendum. But I just wonder, I mean, if I were a member of county council, I would probably ask the the, the body, the group, the, the council to consider whether or not this is a viable option. Um, because once again, water is essential, guys. Um, who cared about a convention center with a hotel connected to it when you didn't have water? I mean, we can argue, you know, what government should and should not be responsible for. But when the city owns the water, the city has a responsibility to maintain the water, and the city has been negligent in maintaining the water. Now, the taxpayer will have to pay for that negligence and I believe the reason they've been negligent, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, the floor is yours. And there's city council members who listen to the show. I know that. Um, call in and tell me that you've not been living out of the revenue stream the water generates, but rather you've set aside uh, enough of a percentage to maintain the, the critical infrastructure, the repairs necessary um, as the years go by. I mean, I can go back to 2004 and probably find a report. I mean, I kept some of these notes. Um, when I was on council in 2004, we were made aware 
that there were about 300 leaks, 20 to 25, that that if um, at the right time could cause serious disruption problems, have they been addressed? Have they been fixed? How many are there now? If there were three or 400 then, is there six or 700 now? If there were 20 to 30 um, potential, I mean, leaks big enough to potentially cause a, uh, you know, a pressure disruption, how many are there now? What, what have they done to correct that wrong? I mean, how much negligence has there been? How much is the cost going to be to repair the water system? Um, th- those are the questions that I don't think we've ever had the answers to. But once again, it's easy to see money coming in. And, and you know, th- that revenue stream is very enticing to do things that, that add to the quality of life. I just think you've got to reinvest in the water system. If the water system generates, I'm making a number up, a million dollars a year. It's more than that. But if the water generates a million dollars a year, where does that money go? What percentage of that money should be set aside to reinvest in maintenance? Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, I would much rather take this radio show and raise hell and create controversy. It's good for the ratings. You folks kind of like it. But I think on this issue, we could be a helping hand. I mean, we could foster a conversation that leads the community to a better place. The people in Sumter and Orangeburg are saying, I don't care what happens in Florence. I get it. I mean, I understand that. Um, but, but Florence has a very unique water situation. And I think because of the uniqueness of the water situation, there should be consideration. I'm, I mean, I'm getting a lot of text here from county council and city council members, uh, friends of mine, and um, 40 to $50 million a year is what revenue is generated by the city of Florence water department. Um, where does that revenue go? That would be my first question. How much, what percentage of that revenue is being set aside for critical maintenance? See, see when you're a politician and I'm, I'm, I'm one of the crowd, I mean, I'm a former once one, always one, I guess. So as a former politician, if we have a groundbreaking for an economic development project, I'm there. Because I want to take credit. If we're building a library, a museum, oh, yeah. a performing arts center, a nice I mean, I'm up. there. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got my nice suit on, and I've taken a shower. Grand and, shovel. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm good to go. But if you're inviting me to a dirt road where a water treatment facility <laughs> is, I don't want to see feces floating around <laughs> in water. I mean, who wants to do that? But I can tell you what, when the feces doesn't properly float in the water, you got big problems. <laughs> uh, the last thing you're worried about is a library or performing arts center um, and you see where I'm headed. I mean, it's, it's easy it, not to make that investment. It's easy it's to have sexy. that revenue. It's correct. And it's easy to say, well, I mean, everything is fine. It's in the ground. But you got trees and roots. But there's all sorts of things that can go wrong with critical infrastructure. And I'm talking about water and sewer in particular. And, um, and I'd love to know how much of that revenue stream has been reinvested in maintenance. Um, I mean, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. You can't neglect the response. I mean, if we want water, we got to fix the problem. And if it's $200 million, the taxpayer is going to get screwed, but somebody's got to fix the water, correct? I, I just think Obviously. as part of, and Larry said it, if, if, if I'm giving, what am I getting? If I'm agreeing to subsidize your neglect, and I'm not talking about the current members of council, that's unfair to the current members of council. It would have been their predecessors. It would have been the council members who were there 20 years ago who refused to understand the, um, the necessity to fix some of the infrastructure. But, but all of a sudden, you're, you know, you're having to deal with the realities of councils um, gone by. But, but if, we're going to, if, you're going to ask the ta- if you're going to ask the taxpayer, we need more money, whether via the water bill or some tax increase, 
we've got a big problem with our water system. We've got, you know, estimates of $200 million to completely repair, renovate, um, get it up to snuff. What am I getting for that if I'm a taxpayer? Did nobody see this coming, by the way? I've not heard the issue even brought up beforehand. William Schofield ran on it. But, but Councilman Schofield ran on stormwater um, critical infrastructure. If you have X amount of, you know, X low temperature for X number of days, here's what's going to happen. Your water's going to stop flowing or slow down. Well, I don't think anybody knew that. I, all I can do is go back to 04, Rev. And I told you earlier, I remember getting a report in my hand as a member of county council that there were three or 400 leaks. There were 20 to 30, or might have been 20 to, I mean, I'm, I'm going from memory here, that there were a, it was, it was a, a higher number that I was comfortable with. But we were county council. We didn't have any authority over the water department. Um, we, we brokered with the city. In other words, if I had an area in the, in the rural area and I couldn't deal with Pamplico or Johnsonville, they've got their own municipal water systems. And, I, you know, it's like it's on the outskirts of Florence. And I would go to the city and say, hey, I've got these 25 people who want water. They, they would do an economic pro forma. That they would say, okay, here's how much it costs to run water. Here's when we recoup that investment. Here's what it is what here's what you've got to pay and it was kind of a weird model that the county sold the water system the city reimbursed the county in annual payments though those payments were um, equally divided amongst nine council districts so i had x number of dollars to invest in infrastructure in my council district um i just never liked not being in control of the water as a council member i mean i just never did like being in control of the water and, uh, and the cities use it as a, and they should. I mean, the cities should entice people to annex by saying you get cheaper water rate. You, you get a cheaper tap fee. I mean, I get that. If somebody's developing 50 homes and they're thinking about whether or not to annex to the city, and the city says, hey, you know, we got this certain deal. If you annex, you get a cheaper tap fee and a cheaper water rate. Well, I mean, why wouldn't the developer annex into the city? And, and you know, when, when, the, when the city grows, the county gets smaller. And some of the revenue, I mean, there's a shift of revenue from one local government to the other. I mean, if I were king of the world, I'm not. You better be glad I'm not. But if I were king of the world, there'd be a lot of unemployed bureaucrats in America. I mean, I can assure you with that. I would have no problem at all consolidating local government, consolidating school districts, um, consolidating some of these water departments. I mean, I would have no problem at all. Now, now, Larry's right. If you play my notion out to the extreme, you end up with one government a federal government, a top-down government, but I'm not going to the extreme. My point is, if you're going to ask me, the taxpayer, to subsidize a mistake that I'm not responsible for, and that being lack or, or negligence of repairing a water system that everybody depends on, then, then I want something in return. And you know what I want in return? I want consolidated government because I think it's more efficient, more affordable, um, less, less duplicious. Is that a word? I mean, you see where I'm headed. <laughs> The duplicity of, of government. Um, I, I just I, we, there's certain things that overlap that I think we could save taxpayer dollars as a result of. Um, I don't see the reason. I'm sorry, folks. I don't see the reason for five school superintendents in in uh, Florence County. I just don't. Uh, well, I think we got four now. Did Timmonsville merge in with with Florence? I mean, they may have kept one over there just for the hell of it. I don't know. I mean, government kind of does that at times. But I would have one local government. And I would have one um, superintendent and school board, and we'd fit out some advisory capacities for some of these cities, uh, you know, like Pamplico and Johnsonville and Lake City and Timmonsville. Um, but they need to be represented. You can't just kick them to the curb. But there's a far more efficient way of governing when the government needs something from the taxpayer, and they do, 
They need money to fix a water system. The taxpayer should get something in return. That's the point I'm trying to make. Dr. Will Bolt is with us. I won't bore him any <laughs> longer fine. with this. Boy. When I was there in 04, I mean, <laughs> good Lord. Stay gone, stay gone 11 days, you come back, that's all you took. I did what I'd have done if they had yeah. given me an opportunity. Um, Why didn't you fix it? Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Why didn't I fix it? Because it was water and sewer. You know? I mean, I can, I can remember arguing about it and, and debating it. Well, I mean, the reason we didn't fix it, we didn't have any ability. The city was in control of the water. I was a county council member. We did raise awareness. And I'll give Councilman William Schofield credit. A lot of his campaign was about, you know, we, we can't be negligent of our critical infrastructure. Nobody wants to talk about water and sewer until it doesn't work. And I can assure you when it doesn't work, the last thing you're worried about is who's performing at the uh, at the little theater or what um, what sort of libraries are we burning or banning at the uh, at the local <laughs> library. Dr. Bolt is here. Uh, good morning, sir. Happy New Year. Good to so, be back. So, so you're a Buffalo Bills fan. Yes, indeed. And that was very upsetting last night. I mean, you know, I said yeah. earlier, and I'll say again, a football player knows that the next play could be his last. But yeah. he doesn't think about potentially dying on a football right. field. A race car driver does. I mean, they, uh, you know, a skydiver does. I mean, they, they know there's a the ultimate danger of losing your life. A football <laughs> player just doesn't think of that. And when you saw yeah. that kid fall over, it, it just I'm like, oh, th- this is different. I mean, this yeah, is you, real different you than anything you normally on. see. Really, the initial reaction was you're kind of selfish. You're thinking, this is our second defensive back who's gone down in the first quarter. We're already thin. Cincinnati throws the ball. Over. How, how are we going to get through this? And they cut the commercial. And then when you saw the the, the Bills fayers places, faces crying, just then you, you quickly realize this is something different. And to tip of the cap to the announcers and, and ESPN for, our, for how they handled a very – uh, an awful, difficult situation. They kind of got us through it. Uh, and again, right, it's, it was the, probably the biggest game of the year. One of the biggest games in Monday Two, two of the best history. teams in the NFL. Exactly. It was well-hyped. You were expecting it's going to be an exciting game, lots of points. There's a lot on the line, and it just put it all into perspective. No, no question about so, it. Um, yeah. do, do you want to rag your Clemson brethren for a second? Not really. <laughs> there was some good that happened, at least with that. My my wife was upset that, that Carolina lost. But I had a Tennessee shirt on in church on Sunday, and all the Gamecock fans gave me a thumbs up and said, nice job. Imagine so, that. Imagine mm-hmm. that. And I, I knew that if, if anybody messed with me, Gamecock fan had my back that Sunday morning. Let, let's shift gears and go to a speaker's contested election. We don't know what's going to happen today. I mean, I'm going to predict that McCarthy will figure out a way to get the votes to make him the next speaker yeah. of the House. Um, I just – it always happens this way. But historically, what is what are some of the storylines of contested sure. speaker races? Well, it, it is a rarity. It's only happened 14 times in our nation's history, and 13 of those were before the Civil War. And you had several in the 1790s, usually just after a couple of bailouts. And what usually was happening was guys weren't getting to, to the Capitol on time. And so, like, the, the guy, the, the presumptive speaker looks around and is like, well, my friends aren't here. Uh, why don't you run against me? We'll split the vote. We'll buy some time. So, so that's why you would have a couple of contested ones early on. You had a, the first major one was in 1820. The the current speaker Henry Clay decides to resign. Uh, his finances had been wrecked. He needs to make some more money. And so we have an election in the fall of 1820. Right after we have this big crisis over slavery. And so what you is you have a northerner by the name of John Taylor from New York 
versus a South Carolinian, William Lowndes. Taylor had been opposed to slavery. Lowndes had been sympathetic or supportive of it. So the speakership election uh, takes 22 ballots, uh, but it was essentially a referendum, North versus South, and the Northerner Taylor wins. You come back the next election, uh, the South says, all right, we're going to get you back. They run a Virginian by the name of P.P. Barber, and now after 12 votes, they get Taylor. Taylor licks his wounds, comes back a couple of years later, and gets it after just two votes. Things kind of settle down. You get the next major one, 1834, when Andrew Jackson is president. And Jackson wants to figure out who his friends and his enemies are. And so what Jackson does is he appoints the speaker, Andrew Stevenson, appoints him to an ambassadorship, gets him out of the country, so creates a vacancy. And so now there's going to be a contested election, and Jackson now can figure out, um, I now know who my friends are and who my enemies are. Jackson gets his friend James K. Polk to run for speaker. Uh, Jackson has a dinner party. He expects a celebration. The champagne is on ice. Jackson even sent his personal carriage uh, to the Capitol uh, to bring Polk back to the White House with the good news. But after 10 votes, the carriage comes back empty. Uh, a guy by the name of John Bell beat James K. Polk, and it was said that this was the loneliest dinner that Jackson ever ate at the White House. Things kind of settled down. You get another weird one in 1839, and what happens is uh, the state of New Jersey, never any voter fraud in New Jersey, uh, but New Jersey had a weird way of picking its House members, and so New Jersey sent in two slates, uh, a slate entirely of Whigs, a slate entirely of Democrats. And so the House has to kind of sort out what this mess is, take some 11 ballots. Finally, the Democrats say, we're in the majority. We ain't playing these games. They seat the Democrats, and they pick a guy by the name of Robert M.T. Hunter, and Hunter becomes the youngest speaker in our nation's history. He's only 29 years old. And so things kind of settle down. But once you get to the 1850s, this is where you have these contested elections on steroids. Uh, in 1849, the House comes back. Uh, and again, we're now this is the only thing we're talking about is slavery. Uh, the Whigs run a guy by the name of Robert Winthrop. He's a puritanical Yankee from Massachusetts, adamantly opposed to slavery. And a lot of the Southern Whigs say, I, I can't support you, bro. You know, throw me a bone, right? Just tone down some of the rhetoric. And Winthrop says, absolutely not. But the Southern Whigs say, well, we ain't going to support you. Uh, the Democrats run a Georgian by the name of Howell Cobb. And he's very, very pro-slavery. And some of the Northern Democrats say, hey, bro, come on, just t tone it down. Don't be so pro-slavery. If we support you, we're going to get killed in our districts. So the, both of the parties are kind of splitting over slavery. Uh, it takes them 63 ballots. And on the 41st ballot, over 30 guys received votes. And finally, on the 59th ballot, somebody says, let's change the rules. And instead of a majority, you just need a plurality. So on the 63rd ballot, Howell Cobb finally gets it. But this is just a dress rehearsal because in 1855, when Congress comes back, it takes some, ready for this, 133 ballots. Wow. They start on December. And that was what year again? Uh, 1855 and wow. 1850s. Yeah. They start on December 2nd. They don't pick a speaker until February 3rd. That's how long it took them. And finally, they have to do the same thing. They say, all right, we're just changing the rules. Whoever gets the most votes. And so uh, a Yankee from Massachusetts, Nathaniel P. Banks, very corrupt guy, he gets the he gets to become speaker. And then you have another one right before the Civil War starts, uh, 1859. Uh, the Republicans have a 30-seat 30, 30 majority. 
in the House. So it should just be a slam dunk. Uh, but the leading Republican, John Sherman, a brother of William Sherman, was seen to be too radical. And a bunch of Republicans say, I, I, I can't stomach you. So finally, after 44 ballots, uh, they pick a guy by the name of William Pennington. And he was a freshman congressman from New Jersey. He was so inept that in the next election, his own constituents voted him out of office. He's one of only two speakers uh, to lose their wow. elections. And then the last one happens in 1923, exactly 100 years from now. And this one might be the model for what we may see today. Uh, the current speaker was a guy by the name of Frederick Gillette from Massachusetts, a good guy. Uh, but the Republicans had a 14-seat majority in, in the House, and there were around 20 guys who said, uh, we want better committee assignments. We want you to bring up this legislation. So they held him hostage for nine ballots, and finally Gillette said, all right, where do I sign? I'll give you what I want. So I think if that might be the model for perhaps what's going to happen today, uh, McCarthy has already offered some concessions, changing the rules to allow a basically a vote of no confidence. He may have to make more concessions. I mean, you have to feel sorry for the guy. He's been angling for this position his whole life. He's within sight of it, and I would imagine uh, he'll be willing to make these deals at the end of the day today. So is the argument that before the Civil War, the debate was slavery? A lot of times, right, these speaker elections were revolved around the issue of slavery, absolutely. And, and we had a lot of frequently contested speaker elections based on that single issue. Absolutely. Uh, maybe That's not the single issue, but it was right? a primary, one of the primary issues. It was a issues. northern versus a southerner. Correct. Yeah. Um, and since the Civil War, only one. only one contested election a <laughs> yep. hundred years ago, and we may have one again today. It tells you a lot about the party discipline that they can kind of, right, they, they whip the votes. They're not going to do the dirty laundry in public. Again, since 1860, you've only had one contested election, 1923, and here we are. Now, maybe again, McCarthy... I'm sure he's been working on all night. Maybe he's already made the deals, and this will be just like most elections, but it'll be good for radio, good for, good so, for so us. So what do you think happens, Dr. Bowen? I mean, what, what do you see happening today? Well, based on what the reports I read, there are cl uh, close to a dozen hard no votes. Under any circumstance. That, and so maybe I think it might just be a – it may get to a second ballot, and maybe the, some of the guys will say, all right, we made our point you know, maybe McCarthy says uh, he'll, he'll he'll make some sort of a concession, some sort of a, a deal to these guys. I think it's bad for the Republican Party, though, if they can't wrap this up and they got to turn to somebody else at this point. Jim Jordan, Steve Scalise. But again, we've we've seen a lot of weird things in American politics in the last three years. Why not a contested, a bitterly contested be good for us, right, if we're still talking yeah. about this into February that they haven't <laughs> Trump chosen. Era, Trump-era American politics. Thank you for the history lesson. Let's take a break. Dr. Bolt will hang around one more segment. We'll be back in just a few moments. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair of Francis Marion University, is with us for one more segment. I want to I want to kind of shift gears, and just so I have a little bit of the old, a little bit sure. of the new, a little bit of early American history, uh, but, but also as much as, as we're dealing with today. Um, suspicion has always been a part of the election. I'm suspicious of this politician. I'm suspicious of that politician. I wrote something down this morning. Um, people have generally decided not to trust government. I mean, when we look at the polling, Rasmussen poll, this is interesting to me, Dr. Bolt, Rasmussen, um, some argue is a right-leaning pollster, but Rasmussen said 26% of Republicans know someone they think died from the COVID vaccine, 33% of Democrats 
know someone that they think died of the vaccine. As we look at American history, have there been high water marks of distrust in government? And have there been extended periods of times when people just kind of said, hey, man, I mean, they don't get everything right. But but in general, I, I, I respect and 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 believe that they're trying to do the right things. I, I think this is we're in uncharted waters. There's been times you really believe history, that. Yes, that the, the level of distrust is at an all time high. We've there's been periods in American history where we don't have faith in our government. We don't think they're they're capable of solving the issues that they're they're corrupt, that their their priorities are misguided. But the fact that we're you think there's these conspiracies that they're that they're lying to us consistently. This is this is something new, I think, in American history. So what do we make of that, Doctor Bolt, as a historian? I mean, when I mean, here's my next line. You ready, Rev? You mm-hmm. love this. You ready? People have generally decided to not trust. Period. When will they become right. ungovernable? I mean, <laughs> have, have there been any episodes in American history where, where the trust factor was so um, in decline? that people just refuse to be governed effectively. Well, yeah, you, you had the breakdown in the 1850s. Just Explain we, that. Well, just lots of people you had. Uh, the 1850s, and we're arguing constantly over slavery. Uh, the 1850s were also an era of notorious political corruption. Lots and lots of scandals. You opened up the newspapers every day, and you would see these reports of politicians on the take. There was a headline uh, that said, Fraud so astounding even for New York. And which tells you all you need to know. And so everybody, most voters thought that all these guys were sending to Washington to the state capitals. They're not looking out for me. Uh, they're only there to line their own pocket. How can they solve these weighty issues of the day? And so it's a, a lot of people would say that the, the Civil War comes, it's a breakdown in politics, that essentially we couldn't solve this issue over slavery. And so this is what led us, sadly, to, to Fort Sumter and cost 600,000 Americans their lives. But we, we didn't believe, though, that... You know, uh, lots of guys didn't trust the government. We just didn't think they they could do it at that at that time. And so, where we are right now, and it it only seems to be increasing. We kind of like joked about this a few. Oh, this is just a a product of Trump. It's not going away. It's it's increasing. And you see the point that you said a lot of Democrats are skeptical uh, over the vaccine. And maybe this is a good thing of the Republicans taking over. You're going to have a whole bunch of hearings. Uh, there might be some dirty laundry that's going to be done. In public, I mean, this is going to uh, open up a lot of eyes of American people. Maybe we can restore some confidence by having but, public hearings. But okay, let, let's do this, Rev. Jumping in with us for a second. Sure. So, so let's have this conversation. So, let's make the assumption that that Dr. Bold is right, and we have hearings. And let's say we have a hearing about the the uh, or, you know origin of the virus. I'm and sure did, you're going to have it. Yeah. Did, did the CDC tell us the truth or not? Let's say we have a a um, a hearing about the FBI. And what they were, were they conspiring with Twitter to intervene in, in a federal uh, presidential election? Let's say we get to the truth. Let's say that Jim Jordan um, is a is a is a tenacious bulldog and he convinces, you know, um, the, the, the New York Times to, to write a story saying, you know, this guy has a legitimate complaint. Does that increase the, the distrust in government or, or do we land <laughs> to a place of, OK, I feel better now? That, that the truth has been revealed. Oh, my gosh. What, what does an ungovernable, ungovernable population look like is where I that's why I kind of ask when you say that. What is ungovernable? I mean, do you, you know, all of a sudden just not obey government well, I mean, authority? Do you not pay is, taxes? Is, well, I mean, that's where I was headed. Is there any example in American history of its people refusing 
to obey the edicts or orders right. of a federal government. Shea's Rebellion, 1786, and the, the Whiskey Rebellion, 1794, in western Pennsylvania. Because there were laws on the books that were, were to be obeyed. You had basically and, and, had anarchy in those areas. And, and what happened, the militia went in in Shays Rebellion, and the army went in in Pennsylvania in 1794. That's how order, law and order was restored in those instances. So when you say you think we're in, an, un, in, in uncharted waters, I hate to ask you this because no, you're no. an academic and your reputation <laughs> far exceeds mine. It's not a good one, don't but, worry. But I mean, are, are those sorts of scenarios worthy of considering? I think so. I mean, are, are we getting to a place, because I believe this, but I'm a radio show host. I'm not an academic. I'm not a professor. I don't have a reputation and, a, and you know, the, the, the integrity necessary to lead, you know, a, a department or a, a class of students. Malle- I mean, you, you've got sure. a lot of malleable students that put a lot yeah. of faith in what you, in what you say. So, so how do we... I mean, I believe with every fiber of my being that my kids will live long enough for some Americans to refuse to answer or be held accountable by their federal government. That's am, am I completely off the reservation, so well, to speak? If, if, if we're having this conversation 10 years ago and you said, yeah, we're going to have uh, record levels of distrust in government, I said, you're, you're full of beans. Heck no, but look at where we are. This is a very serious, how many Americans are living off of the grid uh, right now? You know, going up living, squatting in Alaska you know, just to, to, to avoid, to, to sort of escape all of this. And so how, how do we stop it? All right. How do we sort of, so get how that did we it? stop it? I mean, we fought a civil war, yeah. right? Um, so, so how does this end? I mean, a civil war, what I, happens at that civil war? Government takes on more and more power. Correct. The centralization Correct. of power comes but out. But how of does it. government regain the trust? Yes. I mean, you say if some of these things, I mean, let's just say some of these things that we consider, or a lot of people consider conspiracies, end up being proven to be mm-hmm. true you know at some point you say okay let's air all the laundry and now trust the government <laughs> come back so so here's the question dr bolt when does the government lose the moral authority to govern who no that's the great question and if, and if a jim jordan or a marjorie taylor green can maybe tease a confession out of some high level bureaucrat to say this is what we did I, I was just following orders but here here's here's the email here are the here's the re- the recordings Right. Does that say, do Americans say, all right, see now, all right, let's get rid of these individuals who are responsible. Let's press, let's have a hard reset and we're going to go back to the way things were. Or is this the the tipping point? Are you past the point of no return? And so many Americans say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm done. It's broken. It's a, there's an irreconcilable difference at this. I would hope it's the, the former that we can, again, restore that trust. But again, when somebody burns you over, stabs you in the back, it's tough. So, Rev, do you trust more or less if Jordan chairs a committee and we find out that the FBI did indeed conspire with Twitter to intentionally affect the outcome of the election? Um, but but at least you know now I mean, that, that there there are some people in government that now we would argue that the only reason Jordan did that is political expedience. You know what I mean? Right. It's in his best interest, That's right? And in his party's best him interest, and any witnesses or anything anybody says. You but know but that. to the to the to the to the one half Americans who are highly suspicious of government, does that help or hurt the cause? Well, at the beginning, it probably hurts. But what do they do about it? I mean, do they truly clean house? Do they? Do, does somebody? I mean, you you saw what they did to you know allies of Trump. I mean, they perp walked them every chance they had. <laughs> I mean, does some high level official that lied caused potential death? Do they get perp walked and held accountable for that? Do you do you? Basically, I hate to say it, drain the swamp of those sort of things. 
But, but, but will about, it require that before but, we regain trust? Isn't that the key accountability? That's what we I want. Mean, I mean, if you indeed, I mean, if, if you indeed, I mean, I'm, I'm using the, the FBI and Twitter because I, the vaccine is going to be so hard. I mean, there's so many moving parts there. <laughs> I mean, would, would you two agree that the Twitter FBI story is an easier one to get your arms around Probably. than yeah. the origin of the, of the vaccine or the origin of the virus? And and then, you know, did government, did Pfizer conspire yeah. with the government yeah. to make sure the yeah. vaccine it's was simpler? The FBI yeah. doesn't, that doesn't rely on biology Correct. or science right. and things I mean, like that. Dummies like me can understand <laughs> that the FBI shouldn't have been interacting with Twitter as frequently as right. they appear to have been uh, during that period of time. But, yeah. but but I think both of you would agree with me, Dr. Bolt, that the the realities, Trump not being the president didn't change the world like Americans and people yeah. around the world being forced to get a vaccine, an experimental drug. I mean, do call it what you'd like to call it, and, and we can have a fair debate about how much vetting had been done, how much research had been done, how valid the research had been, you know, what what did Pfizer do to get it fast-tracked and all these. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever know every answer to every question when it comes to that. But, but the point I'm trying to make is, I mean, history shows that people at some point in time will refuse to, to be held accountable by the government when the government loses that moral authority. No, it, it, like you said, it, it's, it's happened before, and heaven help us if a significant portion of the, the country say this is, this is a bridge too far. This is where I, I draw the line in the sand, because you've seen before the, the response has been a, a military response, and we certainly don't, we certainly don't want to see that. We never think, we never dreamed of that happening in our lifetimes. Well, that's something that happened way, way back in the, the early annals of the nation. Can't imagine seeing tanks going down Wall Street or something like that. <laughs> but, okay, but but here's the point. Last question. So what do you, as an academic who is very familiar with the history of America, what do you make of, once again, that there's always been an element in society more than willing to, to buy into conspiracy theory? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I'm a little <laughs> bit like that. I mean, I'm a contrarian um I, i'm I'm kind of a libertarian i mean I, i'm the likely suspect if you pitch a conspiracy theory i mean I, i'm in the crowd that's more likely to believe it than, than the majority but what happens when at least half the country yeah. begin to kind of buy into these conspiracy theories that you know they're, they're just not being truthful with us oh certainly uh, you, you have that right uh, to believe what you want and again it is up to the government to to restore its uh, the faith and the trust that we have. I mean, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, the sort of the, the winning days of the Cold War, but we held the the CIA, the FBI. These were elite individuals. These were noble men and women who were on the front lines protecting us from the communists. And again, the thought that they perhaps were conspiring or weren't doing their their jobs as we expect, that's very, very disheartening for me. To think. And if it comes out that the, the FBI, the CIA wasn't on the level that they were doing things that they shouldn't have been doing, uh, it's it's certainly going to wreck their the faith and confidence that uh, that I've had in these incredible institutions. See, but, but your your hero is kind of Andrew Jackson. <laughs> I got to believe he would have relished. I think Jackson would have encouraged somewhat of a revolution if the government had become that untrustworthy. <laughs> Perhaps you could make you could make that argument that old Hickory yeah, would have been uh, out on the front line. I think Jackson was a small. Limited government, the quintessential uh, classic Jeffersonian. Uh, the point you were making earlier uh, about about the water crisis. This is Thomas Jefferson at his finest. The main political b- debate that starts in America, Jefferson versus Hamilton, 
Hamilton says the government needs to assume all of the debts of the states so we can then tax the states. And Jefferson says, my state of Virginia, we already tax the people. We don't have a debt. Why should we be taxed for the sins of New York, Pennsylvania, and other states? And so the the argument over the water uh, you were having was very Jeffersonian a little while ago. My hat's off you. My compliments. <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll end with that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> On a complimentary note, we'll end. Happy 2023. Thank and you. And we hope, uh, we hope to you see you many, many, many times this coming year. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. What happens when the unwashed deplorables become ungovernable? I mean, that, that, I'm not trying to pose that as some weird conspiracy theorist question. I mean, I think there's a reality. And I think in 2023, Republicans have control of the House. We will get answers to some of the questions that we have conspired about. Did the FBI try to influence the outcome of a presidential election? I mean, that's serious business. So some refuse to go down that road. They're like, of course not. I mean, that's crazy. That's insane. I mean, that's an assault on democracy. That, that's, that's an insult to some of the foundational principles of our nation. I mean, stop with that nonsense. I mean, I, the, the evidence that has been provided to me by Twitter, um, then take Twitter for what it's worth, and I'm talking about the new Elon Musk-owned Twitter, um, convinces me the FBI did. Once again, Rev, I think the vaccine is a more important issue but much harder to understand. I mean, it's going to be real difficult to show that that people in our government knew that funding gain-of-function research was going to eventually lead to the um, the release of some COVID, um, what what, uh, what do we call it here? Help me. What's the word? Novel virus. Um, I mean, that that's, I, I don't know how you even go down that road. Um, I think a lot of people are suspicious I'll say this. I mean, there are some. I'm not one. There are some out there that believe the government intentionally funded gain-of-function research and intentionally, and China intentionally allowed you know the novel virus to be basically released on the the people of the world, and out of that came a complete reorganization of how we live our lives and what normal is and uh, what the government's responsible for or not social distancing and and wearing masks and control, control, control. I mean, I'm not ready to go down that road. I do believe there's a pretty high likelihood that gain-of-function research was spent in a lab that allowed, um, whether it's negligent, we talked a lot about negligence this morning, or just making a mistake, a human being making a bad, bad mistake that allowed this virus to escape. I mean, I think to believe it happened at a wet market is a little bit more conspiratorial than believing it happened in some sort of controlled environment. But 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 some people don't believe it was accidental. I mean, some people believe that it was intentional. The, the, the American government conspired with the Chinese government. They knew exactly what they were. This is almost a uniparty worldwide, the Davos class, you know, the um, the cathedral. And we'll, um, we'll turn everybody into obeyers or whatever rules and we'll use this pandemic. See, I believe that Democrats, I think, what was his name? Um, worked for Clinton. Uh, darn it, darn it. It was Mayor of Chicago. Oh, Emmanuel. Yeah, Rahm, Rahm Emanuel. Emanuel. I believe Rahm Emanuel said it best. Never let a, um, uh, you crisis. know, a crisis go to waste. And I think the Democrats saw a crisis and, and an opportunity to put government in more control or in more power are in more positions of influencing in how we live our lives, an assault on freedom. I mean, if you're a socialist, the last thing you want is people being allowed to live their lives free of some sort of um, of government encumbrance or, or government control or government 
um, telling you to stand here or go there or don't do that or or you can do this. Um, but but the, the the question that I'm posing is, let's say hypothetically that Jordan leads a committee that asks the hard questions of you know the um, the FBI, and the FBI is found to have interfered with a presidential election. Are you more trusting of your government because you know now what you were suspicious of? Or are you least trusting of your government because it's been proven to you how corrupt they will be if necessary? And, and I don't know the answer to that. Um, are we more governable or less governable if we find out the FBI did conspire? I mean, the FBI communicated um, a lot with Twitter. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, that, that is easily proven. Um, we know that to be true. Um, it seems to me that the FBI was more giddy about the relationship than Twitter was. I mean, when you go back and read some of the Twitter files about the FBI, it's hard to believe, but a liberal San Francisco-based tech company was basically pumping the brakes a little harder than the FBI was. I mean, that's kind of the scare. If somebody told me that Twitter was a liberal company that tried to influence the outcome of the election to keep an America first president from getting elected, I said, of course they are. I mean, who wouldn't believe that? I mean, they're in San Francisco. The average age of their employees, 28 or nine or 30 years old. Of course, that's what they're going to do. But if somebody but told me, but those people were not as zealous about it <laughs> as the FBI, that's when I get a little funky and freaky. Back in a minute. Nobody knows. I certainly don't. But it looks like we could be headed for the, um, I don't know, the first multi-ballot speaker election in, what, a century? Dr. Bolt, early American history professor Francis Marion, was with us a second ago talking about the history of um, contested speaker elections. The last one in, what, 1923, I think is what he said. Uh, you know, will McCarthy prevail? You know, will the Republicans <laughs> Um, not be able to take yes for an answer and having the majority in the House. We shall see. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is with us. He's in our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you? I am uh, ready for a long day. <laughs> a, a long day of multiple. Listen, you're right. It, 1923, the last time it went to multiple ballots, so 100 years ago. And before that, uh, it happened several times pre-Civil War. Um, so you're talking about when the House, to some extent, was sort of a little bit more of a parliamentary system. You're talking about when differences were less about party and more about geography. And so, uh, you know, people have asked me all morning, what happened? So if this goes to multiple ballots, what happens? Do they just keep voting? Uh, that's sort of how it's written, yes. But I'll preface it with this. We don't know. <laughs> There's not really a playbook for this, right? Um, and it's going to give a lot of power to this woman named Cheryl Johnson, who is not probably known to most listeners. She is the clerk of the House. It's a staff position. Uh, it is like an administrator, uh, sort of like, I don't know, a, a, a referee. They, they kind of just make sure that things function and, and follow the rules. She is the presiding officer of the House of Representatives until there is a speaker. And so she will be presiding over these votes. And um, I don't know if it's what she signed up for, but it's uh, it's where she finds herself. Jared, one outcome is is McCarthy figuring out a way to cut enough deals to get the votes necessary to become speaker. What are the that's other alternatives? Less, that's, looking le- that's looking less likely. As okay, right now. So, yeah, so what are the other alternative outcomes? Um, 
another outcome would be Republicans figuring out who amongst their their their, their membership can get to 218. Um, or an outright majority of the of uh, the members voting. Um, so is that like a Steve Scalise or somebody else? Scalise so far has said that that's not something he's going to do, that he remains committed to Kevin McCarthy. Um, there is a situation which uh, they could vote to lower the threshold to become speaker. So instead of needing um, an outright majority of everybody voting, you just need a plurality. In other words, you would just need um, uh, whoever gets the most votes. Uh, that is a possibility, and that's how it's been resolved in previous um, uh, elections that have gone to multiple ballots in the House floor. Now, that is maybe a little bit of a risk for somebody like Kevin McCarthy, given his uh, slim majority and, and uh, the possibility that Hakeem Jeffries could get the most number of votes. If every Democrat votes for him and, and not every Republican votes for Kevin McCarthy – and they have set the rule at a plurality, uh, that would make Hakeem Jeffries the Speaker of the House. Now, again, uh, we are going multiple sort of traps down down the, the road here, right? I'm, I'm not saying this is the outcome, but sure. if you ask what the alternatives are, these are some of them. What would you say is um, McCarthy's biggest hurdle? In other words, why are there several hard no's? Is it, is it ideology? Is it, you know, the, the deal was not good enough? I mean— but you're much closer to this than we are on a daily yeah. basis. But but what, what is McCarthy's problem? Well, you have one is the math. The, the big problem is the math, right? When you have a 222-seat majority and you need 218, that doesn't give you much wiggle room, right? So that's part of it. This would not be an issue if the House majority were 20 or 25 seats because then there's always four or five members of a majority party who don't want – you know, the, the, the Speaker Pelosi went through this. Boehner went through this. Ryan went through this. Right. There's always sort of a, a group of folks who, who probably aren't going to be on board. Um, and so that's the biggest problem for Kevin McCarthy. Right. It's just the, 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 the math is what the math is. But beyond that, listen, this is something with Matt Gates and Scott Perry and Lauren Boebert and others um, who have had a long time sort of simmering. A feud with Kevin McCarthy. They view him as an establishment guy. Guy. He has been in Republican leadership for a decade. He was the number two to John Boehner. He was the number two to um, uh, uh, Paul Ryan. And so they they have always sort of viewed him with a, a level of skepticism. And listen, they know the math as well as anybody else. And this is an opportunity for them to sort of flex that that skepticism, flex that influence, see what concessions they can get. Um, they are asking for things that Kevin McCarthy or really any speaker I think would be reluctant to give up as it relates to sort of committee makeup and this ability to remove speakers and um, other sorts of issues that have cropped up. And so those are the the fundamental issues, right? It's an issue of math and it is an issue of sort of long simmering skepticism among a wing of Republicans um, against Kevin McCarthy. That is very well explained. Jared, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Sure thing. You too. That was very well explained about, um, I think twice before in the, um, in the mid 1800s, I mean, we had, um, I think the house agreed to a resolution that allowed a speaker to be elected by plurality, not a majority. Um, let me ask our listeners this. So the only way Jordan chairs the committee is if we have a Republican speaker. I understand the establishment. I mean, I read an article Trump suggests he may run in a third party. I mean, that's becoming uh, a little more conversational. 
than than in previous weeks. So so if you are a an America First Republican and you don't trust McCarthy, you just simply do not. Would you rather have a King Jeffries in an argument of principle? In other words, I'd rather, you know, at least I you know, the devil I know is better than the devil I don't. In other words, I know what a King Jeffries is. He's a Democrat. I'm willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater in the name of teaching the Republican establishment a lesson. Uh, who's willing to go down that road? I mean, you're nodding your head. No, no you're not willing to do that. You'd rather have McCarthy. But if McCarthy yeah. wins, does the establishment win again? I don't know. The, the proof will be in the pudding. I, mean, I don't know how he, how but, he will but conduct the speakership. But if that's your point, I mean, if you're one of the five hard nose or one of the six hard yeah. nose. Um, I don't think you can take a chance with that and leave the Democrats in control of all Well, I mean, if you're Ralph Norman, I mean, Ralph's one of the hard nose. Yeah, I mean, I of, of, of York County, of, um, excuse me, of uh, uh, York County in, uh, in Rock Hill. So if Ralph's one of the hard nose, I had a list here of the hard nose. Uh, gonna get it. Was somebody on the phone? Yes. Let's go there. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning, guys. I uh, just want to say real quick, five years ago this day, there was snow on the ground. And I'm kind of circling back to some of the stuff you guys were talking about earlier. Um, and we we were able to witness some weather that, that, that tells you why people do move from New Jersey and Ohio to South Carolina. Uh, we're lucky. Our average high is 57 on this day and 37 is a low. Can you brought up a great topic earlier about I-95 towns? And I know you can name towns, and I can name them because we're South Carolinians, but uh, I'll give you a few real quick. Uh, Yamasee. I'm sure you've been there before, correct? I have. Yes, sir. And I think of that town as Amtrak. And if, if anybody go from Yamasee to Beaufort, beautiful drive, Highway 21, once you get to the Wales Branch, I call it bridge there, beautiful site, Beaufort County turns into an island from there. And the reason I bring that up, all of a sudden, Beaufort is basically a military town. And it's a tourist town. Hilton Head is recreation, and, you know, basically people go there to relax, this, that, and retire. I'm sorry. Uh, so that's one of those towns. Here's another one, Walterboro. Uh, Colleton County, there's 38,000 people in the whole county. Uh, that's the population of Florence. Not very big. You're going to see Colleton County, though, all over the news this year because of the Alex Murdoch trial. So Colleton County, you'll you'll see it. Another town, real quick, St. George, uh, that's Dorchester County. Most of what's going on at Dorchester County is Somerville, and that's kind of a bedroom community of Charleston. There's a lot of manufacturing in that area, too. But the the feasibility of I-95, and I'm sure you being in government, Ken, have they studied that as far as – if you were trying to build a bridge over Lake Marion – Somewhere along the line, you're going to have to have it just turn into just one southbound, one northbound lane. And I would like to see the patience of somebody from New Jersey to come through South Carolina. And I don't know how long it would take, but maybe you can share some ideas about that. But I always call that that area down there. It's a forgotten area. We're talking about these little small towns. But you brought up a great subject and another thing, too, uh, Jeffries is not going to let Jim Jordan be in charge of a committee. But anyway, you guys have a good day. Happy New Year. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. No, there's no way Hakeem Jeffries appoints David, excuse me, um, Jim Jordan as chair of the committee. Um, talking about the, the, the interstate, here's the only point I'm trying to make, because I thought about it during a break or two ago. 
Florence and Walterboro would be the most significant cities on I-95 in South Carolina. I mean, the, 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 yes, I mean, the, the, there's some cities in the at least towns in the low country that, that are on the route. But when you think about, you know, towns on I-95, to me, Walterboro and Florence, uh, th- those would be the two most significant cities directly on I-95. And, and, and the point Rev made is the frustration that a lot of people, I read things on social media after the Carolina game and Clemson games about the struggle that people had accepting how deficient I-95 was, was in South Carolina. Just cannot Recount handle the story, the Rev. I mean, okay, I, I headed south. Uh, it was actually Monday. It was the day after Christmas. I knew traffic would be heavy that day, but I headed south down to Florida to go to Orlando to visit my mom. And I was planning for it to take a little bit longer, although – uh, I wasn't planning on it taking over five hours to get down to the Georgia line. It was absolutely maddening. Uh, I was prepared with the patience, but uh, it was a struggle. And it was pretty obvious to me that it's just the, the four lanes. South Carolina has four-lane interstate all the way through. And it's just not enough to handle any enhanced traffic. Anytime like a holiday season when the traffic gets a little bit heavier, especially if you're going south where 26 merges with 95. That's where things came to a very slow pace and, and almost and a standstill and certainly a stop uh, many times uh, through the course of the drive. Uh, every time you came to an interchange, the line of cars getting off and getting back on just brought everything to a slowdown and stop. And if you had a disabled car or an accident or something like that, it just added to the wait and all of a sudden you had an extra 20 minutes. So it added two to three hours to the trip between Florence and the Georgia border. Just simply because our traffic our, our roadways, the four lanes, could not handle the traffic. Once you get to Georgia, now it was busy in Georgia, and the interchanges did slow down a little bit through Georgia, but you get eight lanes uh, of I-95 through Georgia, and uh, so it's it's a lot easier to deal with, and it can See, handle it. And I can't speak to how Georgia allocates highway funding. I can't. I mean, I-95 is a federal highway. I mean, it's part of the right. internet, you know, the federal highway or f- federal interstate systems. The, the point I tried to make earlier this morning, and I don't know – the history behind this, but, but as someone who served in Columbia and, and saw how the Senate and house worked, it seems to me that we have been, um, not as ambitious in economic development around one of the busiest roads in our, in our country. I-95 is one of the busiest thoroughfares in all of America. When you go in and in, in, when, when you drive up North on 95, and you get to North Carolina, you start running into cities and towns. When you get to Virginia, you run into cities and towns. You get into Washington, you run into cities and towns. Obviously, New York and, and Pennsylvania, some of the other cities that um the 995 runs through. When you get to, to, to Georgia, I mean, there are a lot of cities and towns. And, and, and I don't know this is the case, but, but I think the reason is the, the Senate has largely allocated or appropriated where the highway money will be spent. What are the priorities in South Carolina when it comes to uh, and improvements and enhancements of infrastructure? And it seems to be I-95 has been on the bottom of the list. Why has it been on the bottom of the list? Because we've got a weak governor. And when you talk about Jasper County and Colleton County and Darlington County and uh, Dillon County and, uh, you know, Florence County, um, that's not where the big development has been. And there's been, I don't want to say negligence. I don't, I don't have any idea what motivates people to do what they do or not. 
but but I know this, Rev. I knew that I, I know there was a an element in the Senate of upstate senators who could have cared less what happened to the beach. Made no sense to me because tourism's a big business in South Carolina. I mean, if you're if you're there in the United, excuse me, if you're there in the South Carolina State Senate, you have a dual responsibility. You have a responsibility to your district, but you also have responsibility to the state. And if the state benefits enormously from tourism, why don't you believe it's in the state's best interest to invest in infrastructure to get people in and out of our coastal areas? But I know that there were upstate senators who basically said publicly, that's not my problem. I mean, I'm from Greenville. I'm from Anderson. I'm from Gaffney. I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to make sure that we have adequate, maybe in abundance, maybe more adequate than necessary amounts of infrastructure. But how do we go how do we how do we allow 95 to be as neglected as it has been for as long as it's been neglected? And it's hard to argue it's not been. I mean, when you go to Georgia, they've got eight lanes. When you go to North Carolina, they've got eight lanes. When, when you get in Florida, they got eight lanes. And and I can hear people saying, yeah, but there's 11 million people in Virginia. Excuse me, 10 million in Virginia, 11 million in, in North Carolina, 11 million in Georgia, 25 million in Florida. But, but isn't that kind of, isn't that what we're talking about? Yeah. Economic development, investing in the state where it needs to be invested in. And I just believe if we had a, a stronger government, excuse me, a stronger governor, I mean, if, if, the, if the state's government was set up to allow a, a governor to be a chief executive officer and work with the General Assembly, I don't think the governor deserves the right to allocate or appropriate single-handedly. I, I would never advocate for that. But I think the governor needs more say in what our priorities are. And if you've got a senior member of the Senate from Greenville and a senior member of the Senate from, you know, Anderson and a senior member of the Senate from Lexington, why do they care about I-95? Why would they lobby the federal government to find some match funds? Why, why make a big state investment in, in that? I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not held accountable to those people, right? I mean, if I'm a senator from Greenville, people in Jasper County don't vote for me. And, and it really goes back to the narrative of the story. that, And I've argued this. I've, I've, I've argued with Representative Lowe Jordan and, and Senator Rickenbaugh. I think the governor needs more power. I think we need a stronger governor in South Carolina. And, and I'll go on the record and say this. I believe if we had a stronger governor in South Carolina, I-95 would not be in the condition it's in compared to our neighboring states. Our neighboring states have stronger governors that they have seen how important I-95 is. And they've made big investments in the improvements of I-95. And, um, and I think that's, and when I read online on social media, I mean, these people, I mean, it was probably eight or 10 I read, but five or six, I knew the people and they're not hell hackers. You know what I mean? They're not the kind of people that just ran on Facebook to be ranting or put things on Twitter just to be putting on Twitter. But they were very, very opinionated about how far behind we were in the enhancements of I-95. And how do we have one of the busiest roads in America running through our state and we've neglected capitalizing on the economic development potential, um, the, the the transportation aspect of that? Um, I mean, if you are a Fortune 50 company and you're in logistics, I mean, and you're looking at a spot in Georgia and a spot in South Carolina, and the, the economic development site you're looking at in Georgia has eight lanes of I-95. And the economic development site you're looking at in South Carolina has four lanes of I-95. What is more adequately equipped 
to handle whatever logistics business you may be in. And I just think we've been derelict in, in, in basically enhancing or improving 95 consistent with our neighboring our neighboring and, and states. And you're stuck in that traffic, that uh, you definitely agree with that because you're like, why? Why is it like this? It should not be. And somebody's been kind of asleep at the... Well, I mean, I, I still go by. I think it's because they've not had a lot of political horsepower in those counties along I-95, and we have a weak governor. I think if we had a governor that had the ability to influence the General Assembly more than our current governor does, we'd have a different plot on I-95. Let's go to the phone. Tony Calhoun County listening to WTQS. Hello, Tony. Hey, good morning. Happy New Year, everyone. Um, I think we're forgetting that um, Eisenhower built the interstate system uh, based upon the German autobahns, you know, that Hitler built. And it was built not so Dave could go to Florida or Ken could go to the beach. It was built so the federal government could move troops and equipment from one place in the country to another. Um, we just happen to be able to use it. It's not why it's there. Um, the bridges are all sized. You know, they're, they're tall enough that we can get you know, tanks and trucks and all of our equipment through it. Um, it's really not there so we can enjoy it. But, but surely you're not saying that's not the reason to improve it. No, what I'm saying it's the federal government's road. It's not the state's road. It belongs to the federal government, so the federal government should be improving the roads. Belongs to the taxpayers. I just don't want people to lose, lose track of the fact that it's a federal road. But, yeah, but I, I, we said that, so yeah. thank you, Tony. Appreciate that. I mean, it's a federal highway system, and I think most people are, I mean, I don't know, most, some people are familiar with why it was developed or, or built. Um, I get that. I mean, in fact, every so often, I don't want to misspeak here, but there's a straight stretch where somebody could land a plane. I mean, it had to be straight and flat for so many you know, a half mile, a third of a mile, whatever, whatever it takes to land. I mean, the, the military was in mind when they built the federal um, interstate system, but but how many tanks and planes are riding on the interstate today and how many cars are trying to make it uh, back to home? I don't think there's a pragmatism that has to apply here. The point I'm trying to make is our neighboring states have enhanced I-95 far more than we have. I believe one of the primary reasons is our neighboring states have a governor who has to look at the state in its totality and doesn't have the ability or, or the, 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 the pleasure or advantage of looking at it as one fiefdom opposed to another. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. This will be an interesting conversation to have with Representative Lowe, Representative um, Jordan, and Senator Rickenball Friday morning when they get here. You know, what, what are the nuances? Um, what responsibility does South Carolina? I understand it's a federal highway. But it comes through your state. I mean, do you partner? Do, do you leverage? Do you collaborate? Do you uh, match? I mean, there, there are a lot of different fundamentals in government that um, that I'm not sure of because I'm not a member of the General Assembly, and I don't know how we fund some of the infrastructure improvements. But um, but but how can we fast track? Someone just texted me a second ago and said the first 30 miles of resurfacing and widening has already been funded. I mean, that money's in oh, place, okay. but there's 200 miles of interstate in South Carolina. Where's that 30 miles coming into South Carolina from North Carolina, going into Georgia from South Carolina, somewhere around, you know, um, Florence. I don't have any idea where those um, 30 mile of improvements, but the money's been set aside. And I would imagine there's a complex funding formula that, that we'll try to better understand. But, um, but Rick and Ballo and Jordan will be here Friday, or at least two of the, well, at least one of the three will be here Friday. We'll try to kind of have a conversation to enlighten our listeners. But it became a real hot topic as both fan bases were making their way to Florida during the holiday season. 
And I mean, it, it was it was told to me by more than one. Man, we are just lacking in comparison to Georgia and Florida when it comes to just getting people where they where they're trying to get in a more efficient fashion. Let's go to the phone, Ashley in Poston's Corner. Good morning, Ashley. Uh, good morning, fellas. I got a question for you. How many candidates in the last oh ten twenty years have run on? Uh, hurricane evacuation and improvement uh, on all levels of government. Yeah, um, I don't know. I've heard some talk about it. I've heard others not say much about it. Actually, it seems like the, the the people running for office around the coast have to make it a part of their platform. But but I don't know that I've heard a lot of others say it. Well, and in ninety five is ninety five is a major evacuation, a major evacuation route. For everybody on this side of 95, pretty much, if it's to get out. That and 378, 501, Georgetown Way. But the main arteries are 95 and 20. 95 and 20. I mean, you got 95 that's an evacuation route that they could probably get federal funding for evacuation. Instead, they're trying to get this new one coming from up north when the old one desperately needs help. Also, 378 is four lanes from Kitty River all the way to Columbia. And I, I live down here, and if a hurricane scare comes up, they'll back up three miles long in Marion County and finally get situated out in Florence. So that, and, and 378's been four lanes for, what, eight years now, ten years now? About eight so years. If they, want to look at it, if they want to look at it like that way, do the proper funding. They could probably get government and federal government to pile in on this evacuation funding far easier because it's a major way to get people out. And the more people we put down there, the more ways we need to get them out. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. And I think the, I mean, Ashley's kind of illustrating my point. The reason we've not heard a big outcry is because it runs through a fairly, I mean, a sparsely populated area. I mean, once again, name a city, not Florence or Walterboro, of any significance on I-95. I'm not saying those places don't matter. Of course they matter. I mean, every, you know, home is where home is. I don't care if it's a, you know, your hometown has 100 people or a million people. I mean, it's still home, so I get that. But, but to Ashley's point, um, what good is a four-lane 378 if it leads to a four-laned I-95? I mean, it's kind of the bottleneck effect, right? I mean, in, in reverse. I mean, it's almost like, okay, we've got all these roads at the beach. We built 31 and 22 and, you know, the southern connectors on the board. Um, but but once you get them to 95 or 20, it's still four lanes. Yeah. And really, you can argue, I mean, obviously, the cases that people traveling through. I mean, it's not South Carolinians originating like those of us that were going to Florida. Yeah, we were caught up in it. But think about the traffic coming from North Carolina, all the way up the east coast and all the way from the west we're, we're being funneled down to the basically the two southbound lanes i mean northbound was backed up but not quite as much at least through my observation but the southbound lanes all the stop and go all the way through our state that 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 traffic's being funneled those those are travelers through our state you can't control how many people come in at the at the state border right correct but but you got to also think about it reb so um so Virginia has a, you know, 10 million people. North Carolina has 11 million. South Carolina has 5.5 million. Uh, Georgia has 11 million. Florida has 23. That's a lot of people. And 95 looks in our state like it did 30 years ago. 
What is different today about I-95 from 30 or 40 years ago? I mean, there's been some expand. I mean, there's been some widening in certain places. I mean, Florence has six lanes, you know, in certain places around it, but it's kind of the biggest town on 95. And the point I'm trying to make is there's not been a political prioritization because the General Assembly does what? I mean, it elects people in districts. And, and people who control the money have historically not come from these counties that, you know, um, I mean, Leatherman would have been different. He chaired the Senate Finance Committee, and I would imagine um, had he wanted to, he could have a, uh, more heavily invested in 995. And, and I'm speaking out of turn here. He may be the one that got it, you know, enhanced around the Florence uh, area. But but when, when you travel 95, and I think Rev said this early, when you leave Washington, D.C., it's obvious when you get to South Carolina. And it's obvious we neglected that, that major artery, that major thoroughfare. I get why it was built, but how many damn planes and tanks are we going to pass on an interstate today? I mean, it, it's to get people from point A to point B, and it's to enhance a, a city, excuse me, a state. And if I were governor, I mean, I'm good at saying if I were what I'd do, but if I were governor of South Carolina, I would try to work with the General Assembly to get them to more heavily invest in I-95 but because I think it is not only a main artery, but could be a um, ah, an encourager for certain economic development along that corridor. I mean, it's been called the corridor of shame. I mean, is it called that in Georgia? Is it called that in North Carolina, Virginia, Florida? Why is it called that in South Carolina? Because I don't think we've invested nor prioritized what I-95 could potentially be to our state uh, in means of infrastructure. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar. Morning, Charles. Good morning. Happy New Year. Same to you, Charles. You know, uh, I-95 is rough driving a driving a four-door sedan, but you need to try to drive I-95 in South Carolina towing a 10,000-pound camper behind a pickup truck. And I'll tell you something, it is an awful experience, not only because of the condition that the road's in, but because of all the traffic and stop and go uh, in that situation. Now you talk about South Carolina has a weak governor system. South Florence, right on I-95, had the most powerful politician in the state for a generation representing it. Um, and rather than take the money that was available to try to make 95 better, we built a four-lane road to Pamplico that you can take a nap in the middle of and not worry about getting hit by a car. So... The, the, the funds have been available. The, the interstate system is funded by the state and the federal government. And I don't know the split. I know the federal government pays the lion's share of it, but the state has to have an investment in it uh, as well. <clears throat> Senator Leatherman uh, spoke uh, to my Rotary Club one time, probably 20 years ago. He said, we need to build a toll booth at the North Carolina border coming into South Carolina on 95 and at the Georgia border on 95 and collect these tolls and then we can uh we can widen the interstate and improve the interstate well that's probably 20 years ago and nothing has been done since then so that's just the point i'm throwing out there i hope y'all have a great day glad you're back thank you charles appreciate you my man thank you for uh calling in um i'm getting a text here from a house member i uh, added one billion estate road funding to improve our roads and bridges sooner Allocated uh, allocated 250 million, nearly three times the usual allotment to the 46 county transportation groups. Um, I mean, I asked if that was gas tax money or not. Uh, the billion was state and Fed match, 
Uh, the county was one-third gas tax and two-thirds from the general fund. Uh, we're going to do this, guys, uh, Friday. Make sure you listen Friday because whomever comes from the delegation is going to well, – let's extend this conversation. The, the, the only point I'm making is if the governor had a lot of influence in state politics, I think a smart governor would have seen the advantage of enhancing 95, and we did not. And, and the argument I'm trying to make is the, the, the reason we didn't enhance 95 is the fiefdoms that the, you know, the Senate and, and General Assembly. And, and look, if I were a senator from Greenville and there were X number of dollars to be allocated to infrastructure improvements, I'm going to bat for the people of Greenville. I get it. I mean, I understand why people do what they do. I don't, I'm not going to say I don't care about Jasper and Colleton County, but those aren't my people. They don't keep me in office. So it's not that I'm saying how lousy the General Assembly's been, but I think if you had a stronger governor with, with more executive authorities, the governor could demand a more significant conversation or serious conversation about what needs to be done to I-95. It becomes everybody's problem. And I think when you look at the enormous growth in South Carolina, I mean, if it's not been in Greenville and Lexington and York, it's been along the Grand Strand. I mean, there's 48 new people moving to the coastal area of South Carolina. I mean, there's a tremendous population explosion happening happening along our coast. I-95 is a big part of that. That's egress and ingress. How do I get in? How do I get out? And I think we have woefully neglected I-95, and I think the reason is there was never a governor who had the legislative authority or executive authority to work with the legislature. I mean, I think the legislature is willing to work. I mean, I think, you know, the um, the varying regions of our state understand how important 95 is. We've just not done anything about it. I would like to hear some of our political leadership, you know, make it known that it is a priority. I haven't really heard that, you know, and th- this this issue. I well, mean, I mean I've got it here that they've approved the funding to four lane or, or make wider and improve um, 30 miles. But it's 198 miles of I-95 in our in our state. Charles is talking about a camper. I had a text during the break. Imagine, he said he tries to pull a boat. He said he can't drive 70 miles an hour pulling a boat in South Carolina. It'll go airborne. I mean, it's dangerous. So, so you know, camper, boat, um, that shouldn't be the case. We, we should have invested more heavily in 95. Um, had we had a stronger, um, you know, governor, I think we probably, and I'm not calling governors weak. They just legislate. The, the Constitution does not afford the structure a governor. Of the government. But, uh, there you go. The structure of government does not afford a governor of South Carolina a lot of advantages in working with the General Assembly. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We've done the best we know how to get back in the groove in a single day. I don't know. I was thinking about it this morning. I don't know of another time in my life I've been gone 11 days from work. I mean, I can remember yeah. in my truck body building days being gone on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. You know, I mean, I'm talking about you know two weekends. That's what nine days. But but the um the Friday, the timing of the holiday, the Friday, the Monday, and getting a day and a half day off. I mean, it just um we had eleven days gone from here. Yeah, and it's um it's hard to get back in the groove. But, but, but the world kept turning. Oh, the world kept turning, and it will keep turning. I'll yeah. assure you of that. The world ain't waiting for you. And the world ain't waiting for me, no matter right. how important we think we are. <laughs> um, it's just simply um, not. But it's good to be back. We'll uh, we'll try harder tomorrow, do better tomorrow. I mean, I, I got to level with you. My 11 days was full of football, um, bad weather, worrying about water, a little bit of bourbon. Um, 
sitting around a fire. Yeah, sitting around a fire telling war stories about, you know, uh, how crazy things used to be and how crazy they are um, today. The um, I went to Orlando, visited my family, my mom and my brother's family, and then ended up in Jacksonville for a bowl game. That was fun. It was was the game fun? I thought it was a lot of fun. Because I, mean, I don't go to bowl games. I just, I, I'm... I mean, when I was younger, like you, I went to bowl games. Um, <laughs> younger like me? <laughs> younger okay. like you. Um, I went to bowl games, but I don't know where I'm parking. I don't know where I'm sitting. Yeah, I, I don't know out. where the concessions are. And I just, um, I guess I'm getting old and ornery in my in my midlife. Yeah, but, I'll um, tell you where I was sitting, about seven rows from the top. But that's, that's a whole other sitting story. There, sitting around a bunch of Irish Catholics, yeah, from, what, from what I hear. Yep. Um, <laughs> was a bit, um, he was a bit animated earlier today about his... Um, his um seating arrangements <laughs> at the, the, uh, the Gator Bowl. Did I tick off? <laughs> but um, I mean, my takeaway from the two bowl games, uh, Charles will throw something at me when I say this. Um, I mean, the Gamecocks can't beat a a pretty decent team like Notre Dame with a depleted roster. I mean, they just can't. When they had that many opt out of the game, they're just not talented enough. They don't have enough dudes to beat a team like Notre Dame. Now, Notre Dame's not loaded by any stretch, and Notre Dame had some kids opt out as well. But Notre Dame has a more talented roster than South Carolina. But the Gamecocks played tough and hung in there. Close game to the end. Um, when it comes to Clemson, and this is where Clemson fans get irate with me, but but I'm not saying it anything other than trying to be honest. Clemson was elite for a decade. They don't look elite today. They just they look very good. I mean, they still got dudes everywhere. But they I can't explain to you what's missing. A Clemson fan would know much better than I but they, they don't look like Georgia. They don't look like Michigan. They don't look like Ohio State. They don't look like, like Alabama. They look a notch or two, um, you know, not as good as they are. Why is that? I don't have any idea. I mean, a Clemson fan could give far more uh, opinion on that than I could, but I watched Clemson play a lot this year. That they, they, There's sp- sporadic mediocrity. They'll go a quarter and play very mediocre. They'll go a half and play very mediocre. The play calling is a bit suspect to me. It's on offense. I don't understand what they're trying to be on offense. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. We don't can't do that. Can't do that. I mean, I get you. You build your offense around your quarterback. They change quarterbacks, and the you know the DJ had a lot of issues early in in the season. But Clemson just doesn't look elite. And they've got a lot of dudes. I mean, they, I don't think they've got as many dudes as Alabama and Georgia, but but they've got about as many as everybody else, and they just don't look like something. Something's missing. I'm glad it's missing, but but I don't know what it is that's missing. And I think it's fair to say, you know, are they as hungry as they once were? Is Dabo as motivated as he once was? Have the coaching hires been as good as they were? You know, during that unbelievable run. Um, they had to be Clemson's a good football program. They'll be fine. Rest assured. I mean, there's no reason to fret for what lies ahead. But um, but the Gamecocks were too depleted a roster to beat a good team. And Clemson just, for whatever reason, their dudes just aren't playing elite football. Um, Tennessee, you know, just kind of wore them out. Notre Dame um, started running the ball in the second half, and South Carolina had no answers for that. The physicality of Notre Dame um, really – reign supreme toward the end of the game. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.